May I help you? Uh, yes. This is not the best breakfast I ever ate, and I'd like my money back. Uh, okay. Uh, I believe you have to fill out a form for that. Uh, no. I'd like my money back now. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. You see, I have to fill out a form, and, well, you ate most of it already, so... You see that sign? It says 100% guaranteed. You know what the meaning of guarantee is? Do they teach you that here? Sir, if you just wait a minute... Look, just put your little hand back in the cash register and give me my $2.75 back, please, Brad. Sir, if you just give me a minute, I'll find the forms. I'll take care of everything. I don't have a minute. You've made me late enough. I am so tired of dealing with incompetence. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch a movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. It was kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing. Or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Hello again, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to an all new episode of the Film Effect Podcast, the weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it what we call the full film effect treatment. Class is definitely in session for this special preview of next month's Back to School Month. But more importantly, this episode is a celebration of 40 years since its release on August 13th, 1982. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is the 40th anniversary of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Universal Pictures presents everything you always wanted to do in high school with everyone you always wanted to do it with. Hey, bud. Let's party. They're the students of Ridgemont High. Uh, Brad Hamilton, the fast food king. I shall serve no fries for their time. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Charles Jefferson, a man with a mission. Oh, gnarly. Linda Barrett, not exactly the girl next door. Awesome. Totally awesome! And Jeff surfs up Spicoli. People on moods should not drive. Times at Ridgemont High. In Fast Times at Ridgemont High, a group of Southern California high school students are enjoying their most important subjects sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So we've got Amy Herculine making her directorial debut with Fast Times here, and Cameron Crowe, fresh off his 1981 book, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, a true story. Well, not in a little bit. Uh, l- looking back at this writer-director team, it's quite the collaboration. 
In fact, Fast Times has always been a film that I've loved dearly, and it's primarily the winning, you know, the writing that does it for me. Uh, Cameron Crowe's such an underrated talent, and if you disagree with me, either go back and rewatch this again, or check out some of the other fine titles that we'll get into a little bit later in our live top five. Um, I know a lot of people are most likely fans of Amy Herculine and don't even know it. She's had a pretty predominant career, but in 95, she did a little film called Clueless, and that was all she wrote, quite literally. But enough about me. Let's send it down to you, Corey, and let's hear about your initial thoughts on both the film and the two filmmakers who helped put said film together. Yeah, it's kind of funny because when you talked about Amy Heckerling, the first thing that comes to my mind, I forget that she directed this film. Clueless is always the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of her. Me too. Like, I mean, that's definitely, to me, like her finest work. At least, you know, maybe that's just the time period it came out, but clueless i just love um you know so that's always the first thing it pops in i kind of forget about fast times and it's a shame but you know it's obviously a classic movie and it's awesome and we'll get into it you think that cameron crow directed this didn't you uh i did i completely forgot yeah, that she a, lot directed of, it. a lot of people do that it's okay called a common misconception yeah i completely forgot because i knew it was uh always knew it was based on the book and i completely just thought he directed it until uh, you know, I went back and rewatched it and I was like, oh yeah, he didn't direct it. So, but yeah, I'm a fan of Cameron Crowe. I wouldn't say like I'm a huge fan, but, uh, you know, we'll get into it a live top five, but he's definitely done a couple films that, uh, are, I really legitimately think are great, you know, that I really like. So, uh, yeah, I just wish, I guess he had more. Cause I remember he kind of did that Aloha movie and it was like a <laughs> big kind of bomb and it got panned. And then yeah. I really don't know what he's done since then. That was his last movie, if I'm not mistaken. He's done nothing. He did that roadie show. I, I can't remember if that was... Yeah, it was after. He, that was that Showtime show that lasted one season. That was on... Uh, oh, yeah, Showtime. But uh, no, it's uh, that was a good show, though. <laughs> I like that show. Did you watch that? No, I, I've never even heard of it before. So Yeah, it's... it's um. I'm trying to think. I think it was like, it was like eight or ten episodes long. Yeah, it only lasted one season, unfortunately. Then every episode, the big thing was they had a different actual musician because it was a, it followed this. It was a show that followed this band around. It's a fake band. I uh, can't remember what they were called. Um, anyway, it's not the hero there, but it had um, Luke Wilson was the tour manager for them. Uh, Carla Gugino was her the, the, was she she was like the, the manager or something like that uh, Imogene Poots was like one of the crew people like, uh, like one of like a lighting rigger or something like that Rafe Spall was on it um, I remember Machine Gun Kelly was on an episode I think if I'm not mistaken David Spade popped up I know Halsey was on there she popped up on an episode I thought that was pretty cool um hmm. But yeah, it was a good show. I actually enjoyed it. Um, and then it just got canceled out of the blue, I guess. I think they were like in... I don't know if they were thinking about going, you know, doing a second season or what what the deal was. But it just kind of came out of left field, I remember that. Because I thought it was a pretty good show for Showtime. And I thought it was a bigger hit than apparently it was. Uh, yeah, with 10 episodes. Huh. So, But yeah, I just like... 
you know, I, I always hate to see when an established director like Cameron Crowe just kind of disappears, you know, like, I don't know if it was because of Aloha. I mean, I haven't read up on anything like that, but it just seemed like he was still kind of making movies. And then that movie happened. It didn't do well. It was a um, pan. And then he had obviously the show you were just talking about, but then I haven't seen anything else. But that could just be a coincidence. I don't know. But it's just a shame uh, that he's not, you know, still kind of working on whatever it is, whether it be TV or movies or whatever, you know. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, Aloha was his last movie. And that was 2015. For some reason, I thought that was in 2012. I, I don't know why. I thought that was 10 years ago. So, I mean, it's still a long-ass time, 2015. It's been seven years. And that movie did get panned, like, badly. Like, and disproportionately. Like, I was just surprised how, like, many people were talking about it. Usually, you just don't really hear anything, and it just doesn't do well, and it goes away. But that movie was, like, getting well, pelted, I remember. I vaguely remember, like, he casted Emma Stone as, like, a, a, a character who was, like, half Asian or something, or half Hawaiian. It was something outrageous, and when I first heard about that, I was like, Emma Stone, what? It's something. I can't remember. It's not really... It's. I know. I know the film got accused of whitewashing, and it involved her and her character. But I've never seen the film. It's funny because I, I, I know I own. I have owned it at one point because I have it digitally in my um, Voodoo collection because it's one of the first titles that pops up because you know it's an A title. So I often see it and I'm like, oh yeah, I do own that movie. So. <laughs> They're like um, Aloha, Aloha. <laughs> yeah, I've I've never watched it though. I can tell you that much. So, and he's done nothing since. And even before that, he had that movie, We Bought a Zoo, which I've never seen before. Have you ever seen We Bought a Zoo? Yeah, we can talk about it uh, later. Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll, five, we can wait, yeah. we can wait. <laughs> I've seen it. So, all right, well, uh, let's get into first-time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So, technically, that's my second time and i don't i don't i don't want to suck at it so if i'm not up to um late 2000 this was a dvd rental right around christmas break i was instantly a fan i rewatched that sucker numerous times before eventually returning it um i think it was venker actually because he first got hired at blockbuster around that time and i think he was the hookup so you'll all hear (laughs) from venker very soon um because we got something coming up that involves Blockbuster. Anyway, uh, yeah, that was, my, that was my first time. Uh, winter, like right, right around Christmas time, uh, 2000. How about you? Yeah, mine was pretty similar. Uh, I mean, you might have been there. I don't remember. I, I just remember we had it on DVD because uh, I remember like and it had all the cheesy menus and everything back then because, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000 DVDs, they all had to have the obnoxious transitions and menus and everything. So I remember that on the Fast Times DVD. And I I definitely remember watching it with uh, the Metzgers. Like it was yes. Andy, Allen, and Ben. Yep. Shout so I don't out. remember if you were there or not, but it was on DVD. We were watching it for the first time. I think uh, I was the one who actually rented it and, and said something to everyone. And, and you guys went around and rented it yourselves. I remember you guys being a part of like that 
that time because we were all hanging out a bunch. And I think it was me who rented it and said something about it. And like, you know, this Spicoli guy, you guys got to check this out. And that's how that happened. Yeah, because I just remember watching it and all of us just thinking Sean Penn and Spicoli was like the funniest thing we had ever seen. Like we all just wanted to be Spicoli. I just remember, especially quoting all it. of us were quoting it, yep. but especially Ben. I remember Ben Metzger <laughs> was like quoting the shit out of some Spicoli uh, constantly, like during watching the movie, rewatching the movie later. I mean, we all quoted it later. I'm not going to say we weren't, you know, right. like something happened to him on is like a, a quote we still use today, you know, so no shirt, no shoes, no dice. <laughs> yeah it, it, there's a it's so quotable but yeah i just remember watching it uh in my basement because that was where the dvd player was back then because of yeah. course this is back when dvd players were a couple hundred bucks so we only had the one dvd player in the basement <laughs> you know in the early 2000s like the cheapest one i think when it hit 200 i think all of us were amazed like wow there's one for 200 now right you know <laughs> So, but yeah, we were, I was late to the game. This movie came out, uh, in the early eighties. So by the time I was born in the mid eighties, I'm not going to say it like wasn't relevant anymore, but it just wasn't something I grew up with. Like I really grew up with stuff in the late eighties, early nineties. And right. obviously too, fast times is an adult movie. Like it's not a eighties comedy type movie that you're going to let a five or eight year old watch normally, especially uh, I don't know how most people's parents were. My parents are pretty cool with violence and horror, but nudity uh, is always an issue. And obviously this movie has a decent amount of nudity for a comedy. So that was Phoebe always Gates. off the table. Yeah. And uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, so it was always off limits until I was a little bit older. So the early two thousands, I was old enough to rent, you know, rent my own stuff. So at that point I could do whatever, but uh, you know, this wasn't one that my parents were going to let me pick up because obviously it had the reputation for the Phoebe Kate scene. I mean, everybody knows that scene. Everybody knows what happened. So there was no way, even if I really wanted to when I was younger, my parents weren't going to let that one fly. The, the nudity stuff was a no-go until I was a little bit older. So that's why it took me so long to see it. I do remember when I first saw the movie, I did not know about that scene. Um because I remember being shocked watching it for my first time, and I was like, nah, they're going to cut away. Nah, they're, not, they're going to cut away. Holy shit, Kate Berenger from Gremlins just showed her breast on fucking camera, you know? Like, okay, that just happened. To my, I think that's the first and only time she's done that, you know? But anyway, it was kind of a big deal. A lot of people, you know, wore out their VHSs around that scene. Well... Got a little story about that later on. Not a personal story, just it kind of ties into uh, trivia and then the plot breakdown, which we'll get into momentarily. But, uh, yeah. All right, let's jump into uh, story time. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit, but it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. So this is kind of a twofer. Um, so this film spawned two different things that I want to talk about. First is 
Well, the series, Fast Times. Did you know that this was a series in 1986? No, no I didn't know it was a series. Yeah, no, it, it's it, news it, to me. CBS from March 3rd to April 23rd, 86, ran for seven episodes. Cameron Crowe was the creative consultant. Moon Unit Zappa participated as a technical consultant. She, uh, the Oingo Boingo did the theme song. <laughs> Dean Cameron. Dean Cameron was Piccoli. Um, fucking love Dean Cameron. Patrick Dempsey was Damone. Uh, Ray Walston and Vinny Schiavelli came back as Mr. Han and Mr. Vargas. So we had that going for it. Claudia Wells from the uh, first Bath to the Future was Linda Barrett. Um, Courtney Thorne Smith from uh, Mellor's Place. She was uh, Stacey Hamilton. So yeah, this was one of those things. Like a lot of these like teen films from the eighties tried to be TV shows, just didn't quite work out. You had this. You had the. Uh, uh, what was the one that had um, Jennifer Anderson? Fer- uh, Ferris Bueller. They tried to do a TV show out of that. Damn, didn't quite work out, did it? <laughs> yeah, it turns out replacing the cast and uh, turning down the nudity and the the gross out stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work out too well. I mean, Oingo Boingo doing the uh, doing the the theme was pretty cool. But other than that, like, um, and then, and they got Heckerling to direct it. Um, but yeah, still, this is what, four years after the fact? Yeah, seven episodes. So I'm sure that you can, this is like something you can probably find like on YouTube. Someone probably uploaded all seven of them somewhere. So probably not hard to find gang. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about is, so a couple years ago, not to bring up bad times, but you know. We had a fucking worldwide pandemic and it was terrible. A lot of things came out of that. One of which was there seemed to be a lot of like reunions. I seem to remember um what's his face? The guy who does uh the voice of Olaf kept on like getting a bunch of like movie reunions via Zoom. And it became like a weekly thing. Like they had like a big Back to the Future reunion. They had a Ferris Bueller reunion. Um, this didn't involve him though. Uh, he just kind of like popularized that. I, I remember that a couple years back. This was actually a table read that was put together by um, who the hell was it that did it? Uh, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. And he was, let me pull this up here, because it was him, Jennifer Aniston, uh, yeah, so Jennifer Aniston was Linda, Brad Pitt was Brad, Julia Roberts was Stacy. Matthew McConaughey was Damone, because of course he was, Dane Cook, I'm sorry, it was Dane Cook, not Brad Pitt, I stand corrected, it was Dane Cook of all people who got this concocted, he played <laughs> Mark. guy. Yeah, right. Uh, he played Mark. Shia LaBeouf was Spicoli. Henry Golding was Mr. Vargas. John Legend was uh, uh, Jefferson, Charles Jefferson, and little Charles Jefferson. The late Ray Liotta was Mr. Hand. And <laughs> J- Jimmy Kimmel 
played some teenage girls and other random parts. But all the non-dialogue parts, the narrator was none other than Morgan Freeman. So that was, <laughs> and you can find that on YouTube. It's like an hour long, and it's it's pretty yeah, it's I, pretty funny. I vaguely remember hearing about that. I didn't watch it uh, just because that type of thing normally doesn't interest me a whole lot. That's, but I did remember hearing about it. It's very interesting. It's pretty funny. You can find it on YouTube. Um, like I said, it's like a little bit less than an hour long. It's not long at all. Uh, they did it to uh, for ref- efforts for COVID nineteen uh, reliefs, and you know they there's a I don't know if this link is still active. You can I'm sure you can still make a donation in some fashion, even though this link is from two years ago. But yeah, uh, and it was funny. It, it you know especially Shia was uh, you know definitely Spicolian it up. There was definitely some clouds of smoke popping up on his. Uh, view so it was a fun time um you know this was definitely the better of all the reunions that i saw except there was a lot of them during that time uh and yeah this was this was just one of them so all right let's get the live top five rob it's your turn okay i'm feeling kind of basic today top five side ones track ones Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. Uh, let's do top five Cameron Crowe films, shall we? Uh, Corey, why don't you kick it off? What you got first? <laughs> so no honorable mentions because I only have five films. Didn't think so. <laughs> yeah, and then my number five has to be kind of cheating, but originally I thought it was going to be on my list, uh, higher on my list, but I moved it down to number five, and that's Fast Times at Regimont High, and that's just because, like uh, we mentioned earlier, I forgot that Cameron Grow didn't direct this film. Oh, we so did not. I'm going to still... Yeah, I'm still going to cheat and put it on my list because, you know, obviously it's based on his book. So number five, Fast Times. Now, obviously, if he actually had directed it, it would be much higher on the list. But since I'm kind of cheating, Fast Times is my number five, since technically it's not a camera. Just knocked it down. Camera Crow movie. Yep, just knock it on down because it's not really I got it. I got it. All right. Uh, Number five for me is singles. Um, I like singles. I'm just not crazy about singles the way a lot of other people are. Um, Never seen I, it. I think the soundtrack's better than the film itself. That's just my take. That's not not really a hot take. It's more of a medium, kind of a chilly take. <laughs> so, yeah, singles number five for me. What's your number four, Corey? So, my number four, I wouldn't say I necessarily love this movie or necessarily am a huge fan, but it's one of the movies I've seen of his, and that's We Bought a Zoo. <laughs> so, that's my number four. Um, I just remember it being a cute movie. Like, it was a good family type movie. Like, Matt Damon was pretty good in it. I liked the whole idea of it. Uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, I mean, I've seen it once, I remember liking it. It just so happens there's not a ton of movies to choose from, so this made it to my number four. Uh, we bought a zoo. All right. Uh, number four for me is Almost Famous. Um, and again, 
this it, it's, I like this movie, but a lot of people love this film. And I get it, you know, I, 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 I totally get the love and the appreciation that, that this movie gets. There are times when I watch this film, granted I've only seen it about two or three times in its entirety my entire life, but it's a film that I've always kind of wanted to like more than I actually do. Um, I don't know what it is about the movie. I just think it's it just kind of drags out, maybe because like it's just not... My, my my kind of material um you know it's got great writing um and some fantastic music but i don't know i just never been like the massive almost famous fan that i know a lot of people are and and don't get me wrong you know i i respect that you know it's just not my bag so My number three is probably his most, I want to say, probably his most financially successful movie. I'm assuming, I'm not 100% sure on this, but my number three is Jerry Maguire. Um, obviously, a huge Tom Cruise movie. Uh, it is so 90s. I, I watched it, I want to say, probably five years ago or so. I just, It just happened to be on cable and I caught most of it. And oh my gosh, it is so 90s. It is not even funny, like going back and rewatching it. Like it, it, it is kind of funny just watching it from like a time capsule uh, perspective. It was pretty enjoyable, but it's a good movie too. Like it's just an interesting journey for Tom Cruise uh, as the sports agent to go on. And Cuba Gooden Jr. is awesome in that. I mean, he definitely deserved all the uh, accolades he got for that film. Um, and yeah, it's just a memorable movie and i mean it was pretty pretty prominent in the 90s and around that time i mean everybody saw jerry Maguire back in the day so definitely had to be my number three yeah same number three for me jerry Maguire. uh i've really liked this film ever since i first saw it um it was a rental right after it first came out it was like summer of 97 when it, it first came out on vhs and i took it home um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely a film that it's dialogue heavy, but I don't know if it's the whole sports aspect or the whole guy down in his luck, you know, kind of gets a second chance and earns his redemption and, and, and gets it in the end. Like that whole story, like is always compelled to me for something. I don't know what it is about the movie. Um, it could also be the, the great acting or, you know, again, Cameron Crowe, he's got an ear for good music when it comes to his movies. And Sherry Maguire, believe it or not, it's no different. Got a fantastic soundtrack going for it. Um, but yeah, Jerry Maguire's just one of the movies that's just, I, I really can't pinpoint what it is. I love so much about it, but I love this movie. So what do you got for number two, Core? My number two is one of my favorite Cusack films, and that's uh, Say Anything. Uh, I mean, absolute classic uh, from the 80s. I mean, everybody knows holding up the uh, boom box over the head through the window. I mean, it's just like quintessential Cusack, quintessential uh, 80s teen movie. Uh, And, you know, while it might not be like my favorite of that genre, it's definitely up there and a great one. Um, And one that I just enjoy watching. It's just like a trip back to the past. 
Alright, number two for me is Vanilla Sky. And I'm going to get this off my chest right now. <laughs> this was tough because having rewatched this film just a week ago when I was in my own little COVID quarantine situation, uh, I went back and popped in my Paramount Presents Blu-ray and I watched it again for the first time in about 15-ish years. And I fell back in love with it all over again. And it's kind of like reestablished you know, my love for the movie. Uh, but, that being said, it's kind of hard to compete with my number one, which I'll get into in a moment. Um, but Vanilla Sky, you know, for all intents and purposes, is number two, but you might as well say it's tied for number one because this is a fucking great film. Um, and you really owe it a rewatch, Corey. I know it's been a while. It's been about 20 years. I know you've matured as a film watcher, and uh, I think that this is a movie that not only deserves your second opinion, but also deserves it. it, it I don't know. It just it deserves to it deserves that second chance, dude. Um, and I think it's gonna get it if you give it another one. So check it out. I know you're in a rush, but whenever you are in the mood. Or maybe I'll just remind you in a couple more weeks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have it. It's also on the Voodoo. Fired up on there. It came with a digital copy. So you've got my login. Yeah, and if you need it again, I'll give it to you. So watch it that way. So boom, problem solved. And it's also on HBO Max. So Yeah, that's one, uh, like you said, I've, I saw it back when it came out on, I think, DVD. But I haven't seen it in so long, honestly. I, I remember not liking it back then, but it's been so long. I, I really don't even have an opinion on it anymore. So, yeah, eventually I'll, I'll rewatch it. That's one of those where, yeah, I remember everybody talking about it and just being like, I don't know, that movie's weird. And then I didn't like it. So, but yeah, it was definitely one that I remember talking about like a lot when it came out. It doesn't always happen. Like a lot of movies, you just kind of come and go. I remember that one, there was quite a bit of talk about it when it came out, so at least I'll give it that Yeah, uh, when I'm looking back at it. It was, a lot of that consisted of people returning their VHS or DVD and giving me shit for recommending it. <laughs> I call, <laughs> like, I, I call I've never called so much shit than with Vanilla Sky, I'll, I'll give the film that much, it had that going for it. Just people just didn't get it. It didn't catch on to a lot of people. I don't know. I'm sorry. To all those people, if you're one of the people I recommended this to and you brought it back and demanded your 388 or something in return, I'm sorry. But you owe it a second <laughs> chance. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, so that's my number yeah. two. What's your number one, Corey? Uh, my number one is definitely... Uh, a movie that I've watched the most out of all these, and that's Almost Famous. Uh, I wouldn't say I, like, love the movie. Like, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites, but it's really, really well done. Uh, I think it captures that period in time very well. Uh, I like the whole story about a kid faking his way into being a writer uh, and then following a band, that's and I love the band. vaguely based like, on him. You know that, right? Yeah, I know it. I know it's like semi-autobiographical. Uh, and I think that's what lends a lot of credence because you can tell he had a lot of those type experiences. Uh, and just the dialogue and the writing in that film is just great. The performances, I mean, it, it launched uh, Kate Hudson's career. 
out of the film. I love the band like Billy Crudup. And uh, I remember Jason Lee was pretty memorable from the movie. Um, I love the um, what's the league kid's name? Like Patrick Puget or something. Yeah, like that's, that's or, it. Yeah, he was really good, like anchor in the movie and uh, you know, kind of being our eyes for everything. Uh, I just remember it just whatever the movie did, it just captured that time period very well. Like it just felt so authentic and real. And, you know, even though it was a fake band or whatever, it's still very interesting. Uh, so that was definitely my favorite. I, I, I think that's the best of uh, Cameron Crowe's work, in my opinion. All right. My number one is say anything. Um, <laughs> we all knew that. Yeah, one. I mean it's 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 no secret. If you, for those of you who really know me, you know my love for John Cusack in general. In this movie, you know it's like one of one of the best, and you know the dialogue. It's so witty. I love the character of Lloyd Dobler. I love the way he just speaks and communicates throughout the movie, the way he talks, um, the way he's confident in everything that comes out of his mouth, and he's a fast talker, and um, he, he sometimes likes to speak, say things twice just to, you know, reestablish something or reaffirm his point. Um, he's just an overall, you know, different, unique character that I've always kind of like in a weird sense, you know, admired, but, you know, and, and the movie itself, you know, I gave her my heart, she gave me a pen, and stuff like that, like, in the, the boom box, Peter Gabriel's in your eyes, um, which, fun fact, there was a Fishbone song that was playing in that boom box the day they recorded that scene, not the Peter Gabriel track that we all have, you know, come familiarized with all over the last few decades, so... Put that one in your pocket till that episode eventually gets here. Uh, anyway, yeah, say anything. I can go on and on and on, but you know, it, most likely it's going to be an episode one of these days. So, save the rest of my thoughts for then. Let's talk about Fast Times Ridgemont High. Alright, so some brief background points first. Uh, the story of Fast Times with Ridgemont High began in 1979 when Cameron Crowe was writing for Rolling Stone. Um, in 81, he published that book that I referred to earlier, Fast Times with Ridgemont High, A True Story, which contained observations after spending a year undercover as a high school senior at Claremont, uh, Claremont High School in San Diego. I'm kind of getting... Drew Barrymore never been kissed vibes from this article. Um, upon the release of the film in '82, uh, the Washington Post they published a lengthy profile on Crow and his year masquerading as a 17 year old, even though he was well into his 20s at the time. Over the course of the <laughs> nine months, yeah, Crow acted as if he were just any normal student, with the only people in the uh, gag being. The only people that were in on the gag were being uh, the, the principal, uh, his homeroom teacher, and several other instructors. 
When it came time to write the book, Crow left himself out of the narrative and instead focused on six major characters, which would become the basis for teens featured in the film three years later. Uh, First-time director Amy Hackerling said that she was seeking to make a comedy that was less structured than conventional ones and more like American Graffiti so that if you woke up and found yourself living in the movie, you'd be happy. I wanted that kind of feel. Uh, when speaking for the variety for the, fil- the film's 35th anniversary, Cameron Crowe revealed that a Universal Pictures executive really wanted David Lynch to direct. David fucking Lynch. They wanted mm. him to direct. Going as far as to invite the visionary director to the studio for a meeting. He had a very wry smile on his face as I sat talking with him. He went and read it. We met again. He was very, very sweet about it but slightly perplexed we thought of him he said <laughs> he said he said he said it was a really nice story but it's not really the kind of thing that i do but good luck i literally i literally when you said he had a smile on his face i'm like david lynch is probably like wondering what the fuck he's even doing there and that's yeah. the next thing you said cuz i've like seen david lynch interviews yeah and I, exactly I just imagine him laughing about it like it is kind of funny <laughs> yeah not only that universal like man. a racer head yeah fast times elephant man natural transition it makes me wonder like did they want somebody else that had a similar name to david lynch and they called him yeah. by mistake like I don't. I can't think of another director with a similar name right off the top of my head but I'm just imagining like they saw another movie and it was like David Lane, <laughs> like get David Lynch in here. And they like, I wonder if they meant to do that. I seriously question that. Like someone like heard a different name, like something that was similar. <laughs> that was like, no, not David Lynch, David Finch or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I can't think of a director that sounds very similar, but I'm sure there is. So that's why I'm like, I was wondering if that happened. Like, just hearing these stories from Universal in particular just makes you wonder. So, they originally wanted to only release the film in the western part of the U.S. for a few weeks before sending it off to cable. Um, And at this time, 40 years ago or so, regional releases were still common. But... And and this was all due to the belief that there was no audience for it here on the East Coast, I guess. We're all lame ducks here on the East Coast. After an excellent response, the film went wide three weeks later with a big opening in the eastern U.S. and had a long run that followed. They filmed the movie in uh, Van Nuys Nuys High School in Van Nuys, California. I I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, and lasted five weeks. Some of the actors who had auditioned for roles were Ralph Macchio, Meg Tilly, Michelle Pfeiffer, Lori Laughlin, Michelle, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Shue, Kelly Preston, Rosanna Arquette, Carrie Fisher, Ali Sheedy, and D.B. Sweeney. I question Carrie Fisher. I don't know. At this point, she was like two films deep as Princess Leia in the middle of her third movie, I doubt she was going for a high school film unless it was like a teacher's role. But I can't think of any female teachers that were in this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, 
maybe she was going to be the Phoebe Cates role because she was kind of like a, you know, even in Star Wars, she was kind of like a sex symbol, kind of. You know, I know yeah, Return of the right. Jedi hadn't right. come out yet. No, you're right. I never thought about that. You're right. Okay, that checks out then, I guess. Uh, Rob Lowe wrote in his autobiography that he sought to audition for the film but was unable to get a meeting with the filmmakers, apparently. Initially banned in Ireland and was only given an 18 rating when cuts were made. The film's unknown what was cut, but it's unlikely it had to do with the abortion subplot due to strong religious views in Ireland at the time. Um, yeah, and that's the information that I got going into it. Um, so the film kicks off. We hear the Go-Go's. We got the beat. song I think of this movie because of this um, and we get the opening montage featuring scenes from the mall we see like the characters Stacy, Linda and Mark all at work we see Mike Damone doing his thing scalping um, goddamn Damone scalping tickets baby Spicoli and his buds playing arcades shirtless bunch of Pat Benatar lookalikes you get the drift it's 1982 at the mall on a Friday night. Um, cut to Phoebe Cates, who plays Linda. Jennifer Jason Lee, who plays Stacy. And there's this scene involving this hot guy, Ron Johnson, who's coming in for service. And she lies about her age. She goes up to him and, you know, gets the order. She says that she's 19. He says he's 26. She's only 15. When in reality, <laughs> they were actually both 19 together and, and when they filmed this. Um, yeah, you would not see a movie like this anymore where dude, like, the 15-year-old I, I is lying and then sleeps around. Like It is funny how nonchalant they were back in the early 80s about that. I forgot about that, like this, how young she was. This dude would be on the... Like, to catch a predator and shit. Like, he sits there and orders a fucking meatball sandwich, medium Coke, and her phone number. <laughs> um, in reality, the guy who plays him, D.W. Brown, that's the actor's name, he was only seven months older than Jennifer Jason Lee. Um, Justine Bateman, Jason Bateman's sister, was offered the role of Linda, but she turned it down to star in Family Ties. So, turned it down for Family Ties and went on that show for many, many moons. Jodie Foster was considered for the role of Stacy, but was not interested due to her commitment at Yale. And finally, Diane Lane also auditioned for the role of Stacy. I can see Diane Lane as Stacy, but at the same time, um, she was like 16. Yeah, that checks out. That makes sense. Younger than Jennifer Jason Leigh, but it makes sense. Because I was thinking of Streets of Fire, but that wouldn't be for another two years. Um... What are you at on Streets of Fire, by the way? I don't know if I've ever seen it. What's the plot? It's a musical-esque film. It's like a, like a 70, not 70s. It takes place in 84. It's like a, it take, it's, a, 
it's hard to explain, Corey. It's like a musical involving a biker gang, and there's like this rock soundtrack, like uh, Diane Lane's the, the lead singer. It's just like the singer who gets kidnapped, and like a lot of songs have her. There's like a fucking um, b- bunch of different music that that come from it. Um, it's it's one of the films that are like known for its soundtrack. Rick Moranis is in it. He plays her manager. It's like a rare serious role for him. E.G. Daly pops up. Uh, Amy Madigan uh, from Field of Dreams and Uncle Buck. She's in it. Um, and Michael Paré is the lead. He's like the main character guy, Michael Paré from Eddie and the Cruisers. It's a yeah. I've definitely never seen it. It's a yeah, Walter it Hill movie. Well. It's Walter Hill. He co-wrote it and directed it, and uh, yeah, it's a good. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'll, I'll lay it on you, bro. It's, it's definitely a good movie. You should check it out. Cause I have it on. I have this Shout Factory disc, so I'll lay it on you. Cause I'm thinking about doing it in December, so heads up. Okay. Um. So Damone trying to do Mark. He's trying. Yeah. Trying to go to Mark because Mark hates working as an usher at the theater on that side of the mall when all the action's <laughs> on the opposite side. Damone gets yeah. into it with a bunch of kids who are looking for Van Halen tickets for the first two, the first 12 rows. And they're like, they call him a scalper. He's like, I'm a scalper. I perform a service. That's a service that costs money. You a percentage of the profit? What can I do for you, gentlemen? You the guy with the Van Halen tickets? That could be. How much you want for something in the first ten rows? Twenty bucks a piece. Those tickets are only twelve fifty. So don't buy them. Come on, Arnold. All the other scalpers are sold out. Scalper? Did you call me a scalper? Listen, gentlemen, I perform a service here, and the service costs money. Now, do you want the tickets or don't you? Okay. We'll take them. All right. What did I say? Twenty-five? Twenty. Okay, just nice way of playing, play, nice way of playing off the words, buddy. Um, so this is the mall that's pretty famous. The it's a, the Sherman Oaks Galleria in L.A. Mall's very much in operation at the time. Like it, it's still going pretty good, pretty strong, pretty popular. Production had to take place at night while they were closed, similar to another film. From this time, Choppy Mall, which also features Kelly Maroney. At <laughs> Slightly s- different premise. A little bit. But it's the same mall, same story. They had to film it after hours, similar to uh, Dawn of the Dead in Monroeville at the mall over here on the East Coast. <laughs> um, so yeah, the mall Isn't scenes... Wouldn't that be pretty funny if, like, they're filming Chopping Mall and this at the same time? Like, oh, there's, like you see the fucking robot the first go by floor, in the background. First floor is Chopping Mall. <laughs> second floor is this. <laughs> Someone walks in by mistake. <laughs> exactly. The fuck is this robot doing here in this movie? So the scenes were shot during the night when the mall closed at eight at nine thirty, to when they opened up at nine o'clock the next morning. The two kids who we see doing here scalp from. Or scalp two, rather, were under eighteen. Obviously, they look like they're fucking twelve, and of course, due to labor laws, couldn't film past certain hours. So they only had a ten-minute window to shoot their scenes here. 
Yeah. That's funny. So better get it right. So we see Stacy's brother Brad, played by Judge Reinhold. He's coming to work at All American Burger, kisses his girlfriend Lisa before he goes behind the counter to start his thing. He does his thing when he throws the French fries in the garbage and says, I shall sell no fries before their time. So this is a reference to popular TV commercials for Paul Mason wine. Paul Mason wine. Um, yeah, just the way it's pronounced. That's why I said Mason the first time. Paul Mason wine from the late 70s, early 80s, starring Orson Welles. Where at the end of the commercial, Orson would say, "We shall serve no wine before it's time." So it's it's a dated reference, basically. That's why we don't fucking get it. Um. Tom Hanks. Yeah, I never understood it. Yeah. I knew it referred to something. I just didn't. I just figured it was past my time or before my time. Tom Hanks was considered for the role of Brad. Apparently, Matthew Broderick turned it down because his father was uh, terminally, terminally ill at the time. Um, That would have made this Broderick's like first movie, if not one of the first movies he did. Can't remember. I was gonna crack a joke about Broderick until you said that about his dad. It's uh, <laughs> like, well, not a good time. Nope. Why don't you keep that one in your pocket, buddy? Judge Reinhold was the boyfriend of Amy Heckerling's best friend, who was also doing casting. He got the part anyway without the producers knowing. So, yeah, I I love Judge Reinhold uh, in this role. Like, I he he's so good. Like. I, you know, I love at the beginning, like you're talking about, like he's like this happening popular guy. He's got his uh, burger job and he just think it's like he thinks it's like the greatest thing. He's got his girlfriend at the front counter that, you know, he wants to break up with eventually. Mr. Popularity. Uh, yeah, he's he's a happening dude. He's got it going on. So I, I, I like Judge Reinhold in this role. You know, it, it, it's a good one. I, you know, I could definitely see the other people you were talking about, but I kind of like. Uh, Reinhold here is a little bit different. I love than it. Your uh, standard, uh, you know, '80s teen movie lead or one of the leads, you know, mm-hmm. one of his first movies, if I'm not mistaken, either. Or as well. All right, so we get the whole no shirt, no shoes, no dice scene. Learn it, know it, live it. This one's on you, dude. Oh, who's got the Buku Dolores today? Uno Dinero. What have you got, Mr. Buckman? I got a cigarette. I got Uno Nicolette. <laughs> hey! You guys had shirts on when you came in here. Well, something happened to him, man. <laughs> Come on, Spicoli. Just put the shirts back on. You see that sign? No shirt, no shoes, no dice. <laughs> right. Learn it. Know it. Live it. So this is Eric Stoltz's first film. And we also get a very young pre-Top Gun Anthony Edwards here as well. And Spicoli, Sean Penn, sporting a half wig. And that's that's the bad... Amy Hackling said that that's the taps hair on top and a wig on the bottom. Checks out. Short hair, a couple uh, a year before this, so the wig makes sense. Uh, 
And yeah, this is like one of the film's like most iconic scenes. This this whole no shirt, no shoes, no dice. Like I re- I re- referenced it earlier because this is the first thing I think of probably when it comes to fast times. If it's not yeah. if it's not Phoebe Cates slowly approaching Judge Reinhold, it's no shirt, no shoes, no dice. Yeah, and you know you might people might be listening to this that maybe haven't seen the movie. You're like that sounds kind of lame, but. Trust me, just the way the scene set up and the delivery from Sean Penn and the guys, like, it is just hilarious. Like, yeah, it doesn't sound all that funny, but just the way they deliver it is hilarious. Like, Sean Penn nails it. Because they walk in, (laughs) they just walk in, sit at a table, and collectively take their shirts off. Reinhold comes around from behind the counter, and he's like, hey, you guys had shirts on when you came in here. And we get that whole, something happened to him, man. Yeah. And then from there, yeah, and then from there, it's just like, all right, the chemistry is set between these two. Let's see this scene pan out. And that's the whole no shirt, no shoes, no dice. Learn it, love it, live it. So. That's the part two where they're like counting their money. And he's like, uno dinero. Oh, that's coming. That's <laughs> later on. That's funny as shit. That's later on. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I forgot. Oh, no, no, no. This, no that is this one. That is this scene. Because they say that before he comes around the counter. Because they're all like, oh, who's got money? And that's when it's like, I got uno, no, uno dinero. I got uno dollaro. I think one of them says. Yeah. That's this scene. Um, so then from there we get the, you know, welcome the first day at Ridgemont High. American Girl montage. Little Tom Petty playing. And this is, you know, your typical first day of school montage. You've seen it in one film. You've seen them in all films. Uh, they're a dime a dozen, you know, and this is, you know, set to this film. Makes sense the, 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 for everything from the song um, to just everything we see, you know, it's just a lot yeah, of 80s high school jocular, a lot of 80s high school fuckery going on. Yeah, and it's just important to keep in mind that, you know, it might seem cliche, but this is the movie, one of the earlier movies, like, this is where the cliche comes from. Like this movie, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying it's like the first like teen comedy of this type, but it's definitely one of the early ones that kind of was like popularized and everybody talked about. So when you're saying cliche, it's like not the film's not really cliche. It's just the films that followed this one <laughs> that copied it are cliche. You know what I mean? Like this is one of the ones that kind of started it around this time in the late seventies, early eighties. You get what I'm saying? Okay, this is the trendsetter. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah, enter Mr. Popularity Brad rolling up with all the girls saying, hi Brad, and all the guys getting riled up as he pulls into the parking spot. Like a lot of jock shit going down when that happens. And his fucking boat, his fucking land yacht. Yeah. <laughs> that car is huge. Uh, Brad's friend Arnold wants a job at All-American Burger. He hates it at Bronco Burger. Ever since they started with the chicken nuggets, everything went downhill, he says. Um, Brad went, Brad just needs to talk to his boss, Dennis Taylor first. And here we get our first glimpse at Nicholas Coppola. Years later, he would be interviewed by the Hollywood reporter where he would go on to say about his name. Oh, by the way, this is Nick Cage guys. The, um, he would go on to say, and I was surrounded by actors whose names I won't mention who were not very open to the idea of a young guy named Coppola being an actor. 
So that movie was instrumental in me changing my name because of the kind of unfortunate responses to my last name. So apparently after the reception that he got for having the name Coppola during the filming of Fast Times Ridgemont High, he went on to become Nicolas Cage. And yeah, in that same interview, I think we've heard of him. <laughs> in the same interview, he re- he revealed that he originally auditioned for the role of Brad, but was rejected because his age prevented him from working long hours. Because he was still seventeen. Huh. So yeah, I could kind of see him as Brad, though. I think that could work too, Nick Cage, Brad. But yeah, it's kind of funny. I completely forgot uh, he was in the background in this film <laughs> until I rewatched it. I was like, oh yeah, it's fucking Nick Cage there. Yeah, he's he's like. You see him a few times, but he like you see him like two at least two times. I saw him. I remember. Yeah. So Spicoli and the guys come literally rolling out of their fucking little <laughs> van, and we get our introduction to Mister Hand. Mister Hand. Mister Hand. <laughs> Mister Ray Walston, the late Mister Ray Walston. Um. Spicoli gets his schedule ripped up. He's like, this is U.S. history. I see Globe right there. And he comes in late, of course, doing this whole interaction. So Mr. Hand just takes his schedule and rips it up. And he's like, you know, what'd you do that for? And that's like the part where he just goes, you dick. Um, <laughs> I love Mr. Hand. Like, you could, you could just tell he's had a Spicoli several times and he's just not going to put up with Spicoli's shit. Oh yeah, like, I just love how like he has the door locked, and then as soon as Spicoli knocks, like Mister Hand just like runs over to the door, and starts talking about wasting his time. Like I, yeah. Mister Hand is just great. I love like, he is just hilarious. I love him and Spicoli. Ray Walston just embraces the role, the character, and you know at the time he was known for uh, his my favorite Martian. He was Uncle Martin, and you know. My note here I have about him, it said, Unfortunately, Walston, like many actors of that era, was typecast in the role and couldn't book serious roles until the decade ended. Walston said that after the release of this film, he'd walk down the street and young people would shout out, you know, Mr. Hand. He was grateful for that as it finally meant that he had torn away from being only associated with playing Uncle Martin. And, you know... Good, because I think he's great. I think he's just a natural fit as the teacher. He plays the character so well because he reminds me of, you know, my everyday by the books teacher that he's trying to be that, you know, we all had for history in middle school or high school or whatever it may be. You know, he just he he just he's so good. He's just aces at it. I think the reason he works very well is like, yeah, he's kind of a dick. But he seems like he really cares about his class. Like, I, I don't know how he, I, I don't know, like, why it comes through that way so well in the acting. But, like, you can tell he doesn't necessarily want to be a dick. He just wants to get down to business, do his job well, teach the kids his He's hard, but he has a heart. Yeah, and Spicoli's in here fucking it up and messing with his time. <laughs> so he's got to make an example out of him. So I think that's why it works out well. He's not just being a, uh, mean or being a dick just to be a dick like he just wants to do his job teach his class Spicoli's stopping him so he's got to do something about it and I think that's why it comes out well like he's a hard ass but you can tell he cares about the kids learning you know and that's why I think it works and as great as Mr. Ray Walston is in the role 
he was not Amy Heckling's first choice. Do you know who it was? No. Fred Gwynn. But he passed as the script featured, quote, unquote, too much nasty stuff. <laughs> um, okay. The character's big in the novel, apparently, but Walston provided even little guys... No. He he proved even little guys can, mean a- can be mean assholes. Unsurprisingly, the elder actor didn't quite gel with Sean Penn, who improvised a line calling Hand a red-faced motherfucker, which sent Walston to heckling to complain about the kid not following the script. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I can see how that can rub off the actor who's just kind of a vet who just isn't used to that kind of treatment, being called a motherfucker, whether it's being improvised or not. That's still like, all right. And that's even still, like, that's kind of extreme for the character of Spicoli, so thank God they cut that line. Um... And yeah, so uh, one more thing too. Uh, after this, when the scene ends, we see the class like sniff their papers that he hands out. So this was a popular ritual apparently in the '60s, '70s, and early '80s, as photocopying machines were very expensive. So ditto machines were used, and that resulted in copies that got you high or something or no they didn't get you high but they smelled good i think is what i read yeah it's like sniff it's kind of like sniffing a magic marker like it doesn't necessarily get you super high but you know it's just something you do as a kid you just try to do it i never sniffed my see if it works i don't know maybe i've never tried to sniff my yeah never tried to do that but like i've done the magic marker so i I would assume it's similar to that yeah we've all done the magic marker we've all done whippets we've done you know the whole air from the fucking the 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 whip top whip cream machine or not machine what the fuck am i talking about the the can (laughs) whip cream can yeah thank you um so yeah Anyway, uh, so we get Linda and Stacy at lunch discussing boys and sex, and the scene here that Linda shows Stacy how to give head with a carrot. Glenda, yeah, which who packs who packs carrots that way? Who packs a whole like, who carrot? Take, like who takes like who takes a whole fucking carrot? Like you cut it into carrot sticks, like your Roger or fucking you bring, rabbit. Yeah, or you bring mini carrots. Like you don't have a whole carrot. Like come on, like your Bugs Bunny. That's right. Um. Linda claims that she's an expert, but it's obvious she's full of shit from the way she loves the attention that she's given, and, and that's why. That's just the way I look at this character, Linda. I've always looked at it as, I don't know, like she just kind of like tries to be more than what she really is around Linda or oh, yeah. uh, Stacy. And, and, and there's this, you know, the whole Doug character, which... May or may not even be a real character, which we'll get into that later on. But anyway, yeah, we also find out that there's a uh, precisely three Pat Benatar lookalikes in their class, based off the <laughs> dialogue between these two. Um, yeah, and 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 <laughs> I don't know. The whole thing's a little bit much. Just her this. Uh, Simulating oral sex with the goddamn kid around the whole class, all the boys yeah. looking around and shit. Like, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't see that. Ha- I, you know, I. There's no way they can be construed any other way. Like, 
if they were really going to do that, I don't maybe think they'd Cameron be doing it observed the that room. one day. I don't know. Who yeah. knows? Uh, so yeah, now we're introduced to Vincent Schiavelli's Mr. Vargas, who's a little slow today since he just switched to Sanka. So have a heart. That's what he says. <laughs> Mr. Vargas was based on Claremont High School biology teacher George L. Jones. Jones kept many animals in class, rattlesnakes, entire beehives, bats, etc., and he would regularly take students on strange field trips, such as visiting the San Diego sewage treatment plant or to watch surgery on pigs at the University of California. And that's what Mr. Vargas, that's who Mr. Vargas is based off of, this fucking loony bin. Um, Mark asked Damone how he gets women around him. I often look at Mark and Damone as the male counterparts for Stacy and Linda. That's my note. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of similar. It's funny because they're both, like you mentioned, they're both, like, Damone and uh, Linda, like, they're both clueless too yep. but they just act cooler and don't you know they don't really know anything they're just trying to be older and cooler and then you know obviously rat and stacy are just more honest about where they are sexually and uh as far as dating and all that they're just honest about it that's all and then we get stacy's night out with ron johnson they go to the point which is this it's just a dirty-ass baseball dugout. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like a terrible place to have your first time. I know. Like, oh, man. I think the worst fucking place ever. Set the Jackson Brown, Somebody's Baby, which, love that song, by the way, but it's a terrible fucking place to have your fucking virginity taken from you, especially by a guy who's like 10 years older than you. Fuck that. You're better than this, Stacey. Um... Brad talks to Arnold about his intentions to break up with Lisa. This becomes Brad's like little subplot. He's kick- kicking around the entire fucking movie. Um, yeah, because at this point, Brad's still on top of the world. He's like, you know, got yeah. his job. Like, he got his friend the job. He's got his girlfriend. He doesn't really need her. It's kind of like the same plot line in um, Can't Hardly Can't Wait. wait. <laughs> it's a Mike <laughs> Dexter subplot all the fucking way. It's all I was thinking watching this film the other day. Oh, I was yeah. thinking, this is Mike Dexter. Yeah. yeah. He's on top of the world. He's going to di- uh, dump his girlfriend, but mm-hmm. uh, doesn't work out too well. Exactly. <laughs> no one's going to believe you, Amanda. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Mr. Han, he's handing out constant Fs to everyone before realizing Spicoli's missing. And he, he sends Desmond to bring him in. And after he claims he saw him in lunchroom earlier, that's right. He's like, Wait a minute, there's no birthday party in here. So this is the scene where Spicoli simply answers, I don't know, which prompts Han to write it out on the chalkboard and mock him and, you know. One of the funniest things, I don't know. I love it. It's iconic. It's fucking iconic. And the look on his face, too. Wait a minute, there's no birthday party for me here. Oh, Mr. Han. What's the reason for your truancy? Just couldn't make it on time. You mean you couldn't or you wouldn't? It was like a full crowd scene at the food line. Food will be eaten on your time. Why are you continuously late for this class, Mr. Spicoli? Why do you shamelessly waste my time like this? 
I don't know. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I don't know. That's nice. Mr. Han, will I pass this class? Gee, Mr. Spicoli, I don't know. That's nice. I really like that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave your words on this board for all my classes to enjoy. Giving you full credit, of course, Mr. Spicoli. All right. So apparently Penn improvised during his takes and tried to find ways to aggravate him in real life. Um, he did things to genuinely get, you know, reaction who played, you know, he pretty much kind of like piggyback off the last note that I had about these two. Like, he was just aggressively being, like, trying to, like, be his character and, and actually, like, upset the guy. Like, not the actor, the actual actor playing him. Um. So, yeah. And then we get Christmas time at Ridgemont Mall. Time flies in this movie, I tell you that. Real quick, too. This movie is only 87 minutes long. I never realized yeah. how short it is until I watch it. And I'm like, God damn, it was a short movie. It's a breeze and it goes through the whole school year. It so is. it's like one scene you're in fall and next scene you're in winter. We're already <laughs> at Christmas time. So, you know, we get shit like kid kids pissing on Santa, credit cards being maxed out. Time. It's got the old school credit card, the one where they would like go click, 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 click. the That's old school right. machine. And, you know, it just reminded me of my times at the mall working during the holidays. I don't miss them. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Verizon, Blockbuster, all that shit. No, no, Blockbuster wasn't the mall. Verizon, that was the mall when I was working on Christmas 08. Blockbuster still sucked at Christmas because you had all Uh the assholes that would come in on Christmas Day. Because Blockbuster never closed. Never. Yeah. Open. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I hated working on Christmas Day. I'm like, you people can't just sit at home and be with your family. You got to come here and rent movies. I know. You got to keep me busy on my day here, fucker. Well, <laughs> and I know a lot of people say, well, you're already open. But I tell you what, if the people didn't come, uh-huh. Blockbuster wouldn't stay open. Exactly. They would try it once and then quit. They stay open because it was busy as shit. Because people would come in because I guess their families do cheap to buy them a DVD player and a fucking DVD to play. So they would come in and rent shit. Huh. Anyway, that's my tire and about uh, tirade about that. All right, so Ron Johnson. I don't know why I keep calling him by his first and last name, but I might as well commit now. <laughs> he hasn't called Stacy, so Linda tells her to move on before we see Forrest Whitaker's Jefferson introduced. Charles Jefferson. He sees the moon for Earth, Wind, and Fire tickets. For him and his little brother. And Damon's listening to Mark tell him about picking up girls and being more like he is. So yeah, I got you down here, Earth with the Fire. Two for Earth with the Fire. Let you know what's coming around. Um he keeps his little fucking like little little notebook, which I don't even know if half the shit that he's writing in there is actual legitimate notes, but who knows? Maybe. Anyway. Yeah, you don't actually know like how many tickets he actually gets. No. Like, Is he actually going to get any of these That's tickets or does he just tell He's people He's a total that? scam artist, dude. 
He's a complete fucking scam artist and shit. I mean, we see that little, I mean, I never, I never get ahead of shit, but like, you know, the whole montage and, or, or scene with him, like, calling the people that owe him money and shit. So, he ain't doing that good of a job giving, you know, getting money. You got one job. You collect the money when you sell the ticket. That's the whole point of selling. So, why you gotta be calling people asking where the fucking $52 or whatever the hell he asked for from that one guy is? I was like, Jesus Christ, dude. How legit your shit. Anyway, I digress. Um, Mark, no, Damone, he ends up convincing Mark, well, yeah, Mark, to go ask Stacy for her phone number. So he approaches her with his little, you know, innocent, shy approach. He's asking a series of questions about lost jackets that turns out. That turns into an awkward, awkward moment where he asks for her phone number, so he can ask her out sometime. Which she does. Yeah, she's just, cool with. Just like the most random thing to ask about jackets. Yeah. Like I, I, like I, I mean, I'm pretty awkward, but he takes it to a different level. I've never just randomly asked about <laughs> weird shit like that before. I know. While talking to a girl. <laughs> It's crazy. Like, you would think he's, like, asking these questions out of a fucking notepad or something that he had written out for himself. Uh, so he gets his number, or her, his. He gets her number. So that worked. Brad at the uh, American Burger bathroom practicing his own breakup with Lisa while writing. No, while cleaning. Big hairy pussy off the mirror. He, <laughs> he says to himself, he's like, I'm a single successful guy. And every time I hear him say that too about himself, I always like, I'm always wondering if that's a Bouncing Souls World reference, if that's where they got the song Single Successful Guy from, or the inspiration behind it. So, after this is the 100% guaranteed best breakfast scene. So you can look, <laughs> listen, mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to 100% kick your ass. And, <laughs> you know. It just sucks that Dennis Taylor had to hear that all go down at the wrong time. And so he is as he asked Brad if he threatened the customer or used profanity. And he says, yeah, Dennis, but, oh, doesn't matter, Mr. Hamilton, you're fired. And then the fucking business guy has this little smirk on his face. I'd be like, hey, man, I'm fucking fired. We can go outside right now. Eventually, you got to come out. I got nothing to lose yeah. anymore, motherfucker. You'd be smirking and shit. Um, I'm just surprised uh, Brad hasn't dealt with this before. I mean, just having worked in retail, if you have anything like that on a sign, you know you're going to get people to take advantage of it. So I'm surprised he had this reaction, but it is pretty funny. And Brad just finally snaps. He's like, oh, I'll try to help you, sir. I'll take care of it. Uh, uh, uh. And then he just snaps. He's like, I'm going to kick your ass. Yeah. I just love the way Reinhold delivers this. Pretty funny. Yeah, it almost sounds like it's improvised, but it's, I'm sure it was scripted 100%. But just the way he delivers it, it's fucking flawless. It's great. Um, so, yeah, after that, we uh, this leads to Spicoli. He's having a dream of being the man who surfed the largest Hawaiian waves. I'll tell you, surfing's not a sport. It's a way of life. It's no hobby. It's a way of looking at that wave and saying, hey, bud, let's party. <laughs> I, I love the, uh, that's how the interviewer this whole time. <laughs> like the guy who's interviewing him. Yeah. Hilarious. Oh yeah. It's the, it's um 
I forgot the fucking dude's name, but it's 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 a kind of like a David Letterman, Merv Griffin type of thing. Um, yeah, because I just love it because like Spicoli's spouting all this fucking nonsense, and the interviewer's just like, okay, <laughs> and then ask him another question after that. And I just I was dying watching well, the scene over. Originally, <laughs> originally the dream was supposed to be um, him. He was supposed to be singing. Um. Highway to Hell by ACDC and then he was going to be interviewed on the Tonight Show of Johnny Carson but it had to be changed at the start for obvious reasons um, it was just completely rewritten um, and at the end it, it was supposed to be written and filmed after the film was wrapped but uh, beginning the editing process Heckling, Art Linson and Irving Azoff realized how great Spicoli had been acted by Sean Penn and then needed to beef up Penn's role in the film. So, um, we get the quiet, awkward school spirit assembly, which leads to Kelly Maroney getting serious about having a lot of courage to stand up there and do this for no reaction out of you people. And fucking while this is all happening, Lisa ends up breaking up with Brad and says that she still <laughs> wants to be friends, similar to what he was practicing telling her in the bathroom himself. Now, my biggest takeaway from this scene here is that one of the cheerleaders that we see in this squad is played by Pamela Springfield, who is the boss's sister. Now, she's quasi-famous in, in, the, in the 80s horror field because in the late 80s, she played um, Angela in Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's uh, Pamela Springfield, Bruce's sister. Hmm. And she's also in, I believe she's, I want to say, no, she's not. That was uh, Renee Estevez, Charlie Sheen's sister. She, I was going to say she was also in Heather's, but no, that's that, that's the other little sister no one hears about anymore. Anyway, um... Yeah, Mark, Mark, Mark's about to go out with Stacy. So Damone has a five-point plan concocted for him. What you need is my special five-point plan. Come on, Damone, I need real help here. What do you mean? Hey, men have died trying to obtain this valuable information, you know. But I'll give it to you for free. Okay, okay, what's your five-point plan? All right. Now pay attention. First of all, Rat... You never let on how much you like a girl. Oh, Debbie. Hi. Two, you always call the shots. Kiss me. You won't regret it. Now, three, act like wherever you are, that's the place to be. Isn't this great? Four, when ordering food, you find out what she wants, then order for the ball for you. It's a classy move. A lady will have the linguine and white clam sauce and a Coke with no ice. And five. Now, this is most important, Rat. It comes down to making out. Whenever possible, put on side one of Led Zeppelin 4. Say, rather than go through the whole fucking five steps, I'll probably just slap a scene to this, or, or a clip, rather. And, yeah, um... One of the things he says is put on side one of Led Zeppelin 4. Then we cut to Mark driving Stacy 
but he's playing Cashmere. <laughs> Attention, Fast Times fans. Cameron Crowe is aware that Cashmere is in on is its own physical graffiti and not Led Zeppelin Four. Like he gets it. Okay. Because people are always trying to call him out for that, like, inaccuracy or, or something like that. And it's like, yeah, he knows. It's part of the joke. That's why he's listening to something completely different. Hence the reason they go to the restaurant and he ends up forgetting his wallet. Yeah, come on. So, when speaking with the, uh, the, the New York Daily News, Cameron Crowe explained that this wasn't a flub. He, he didn't, it, but instead something to go... To do with the publishing rights to the album, Crow went on to say that a decision was made to imply that Rat had messed up his big moment with the crush. They essentially made it work since they couldn't get the rights to Led Zeppelin 4, but they could apparently get the rights to graf- uh, physical graffiti. So that's <laughs> that's basically what it boils down to is rights. Uh, but guys, he's aware, okay? So we get the, the, the date, they go to the restaurant, and he ends up like almost... As soon as they get there, he realizes no wallet. So, um, this scene goes on and on and on, where they keep on ordering different appetizers and different appetizers and entrees and shit, and cokes, a lot of cokes too. And he ends up calling Damone for his wallet, and he and Damone ends up bringing it to him and shit like that. And he's like, all casual, like, "Hey, by the way, you left your wallet at my house, you big doofus." You want it back? <laughs> um, yeah. I'm definitely not here for the wild. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely not here Can't for this exploding obvious. jalapeno popper. So, according to Brian Backer, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and her family allowed him to stay at their house for no charge during the filming of the film because he came down from Brooklyn and was pretty broke. So, Jennifer Jason Lee's family was like, come on in, Brian. Um... And That's pretty funny. I I love the restaurant he picked too. It's like this German restaurant. <laughs> like they're eating all this German food. I'm like, anybody who's gone on a date knows you do not pick a German restaurant on your first date. I mean, that is some heavy food. It's like an Oktoberfest type joint. Yeah, <laughs> that's some heavy food to be putting down. Like you don't want to be eating sauerkraut on your first. A lot date. of sauerkraut and bratwurst and shit. Yeah. <laughs> They have the knockwurst. That's I think they yeah. were the knockwurst. Jalapeno poppers and shit like that, man. Anyway, so Mark drops Stacy off, but uh, comes inside for a second to look at family photos with her in the, her room, ignoring all of her advances in the process because he's so fucking nervous. Um, eventually he kisses her and eventually leaves. Not long after that. And it's evident someone stole his tape deck while they were having dinner, he says. My sister's really, you know, crazy, and you're not having her car back by 11. Like, this scene is really weird with with his awkwardness. Because, uh, yeah, it's something about the tape deck was stolen while they were having dinner. Because a comic gets made while they were driving, and then he tries to go home saying his sister's crazy about him not having the car back by 11, but is she just going to turn a blind eye to the tape deck missing? <laughs> You're saying that she's going to be pissed that the car's not back by 11, but what about the fucking tape deck? So anyway, she interprets this as shyness and is just ready to move on. So, dun, dun, dun. 
Another one bites the dust. So Stacy tells Linda about her encounter with Mark because she was beginning to really like him. And Linda's whole thing is, you know, he's just a boy. He's not mature. You need to be with <laughs> You need to start seeing men like my Dougie. Dougie, Dougie, Dougie. We only see about but never hear. Or we only hear about but never see. Um, oh, and then we get this Macaulay and Jefferson's little brother uh, taking the Camaro for the ride that turns into the spin crash like <laughs> the it, it's a 79 Chevy Camaro Z28 and my favorite one of my favorite Spicoli lines is like my uncle is a repairman my old man's a repairman or television repairman and he has his ultimate set of tools I can fix it <laughs> My brother's gonna kill us. He's gonna kill us. He's gonna kill you and he's gonna kill me. He's gonna kill us. Hey man, just be glad I had fast reflexes. My brother's gonna shit. Make up your mind, dude. Is he gonna shit or is he gonna kill us? First he's gonna shit, then he's gonna kill us. Relax, all right? My old man is a television repairman. He's got this ultimate set of tools. I can fix it. You can't fix this car, Macaulay. I know, it's like, who would let Spicoli drive their car? He's like, <laughs> like, I would not let Spicoli anywhere near my Camaro. My brother's gonna shit. My brother's gonna shit. My brother's gonna, he gonna kill us. He's like, well, make up your mind. Is he gonna shit or is he gonna kill us? <laughs> so, I love the banner here, the fucking stoner banner. But yeah, like, how would he get out of there with Jefferson's car without Jefferson noticing? Like, they're just joyriding in that thing on a Friday night or whatever it is. Uh, I just love the fact Spicoli's <laughs> hanging out with Jefferson's little brother. Yeah, it's random as <laughs> shit, too. It is just weird. Like, I, I don't know. I don't fully understand that relationship, but it is kind of funny. I mean, I know it leads to uh, this fucking bizarre Kill Lincoln montage. <laughs> like, this shit would never fly today. Like, <laughs> they're all like you know kill Lincoln and shit like no like no no school is gonna allow that first off it's like threatening the violence and shit ending with Jefferson's car being um, on full display his destroyed car which I question how they even got that there and how they got it you know just another one past Jefferson himself <laughs> I'm, I'm led to believe he's that stupid okay so, yeah, he's basically setting up Lincoln for this. And then we cut to the Lincoln-Ridgemont game. And it's just Jefferson manhandling motherfuckers left and right. Yeah, 42 to nothing is the final score. Um, I mean, just look at Jefferson. Like, he's fucking huge as far as Whitaker. Here's a, here's a funny story. Forrest Whitaker was a student at... USC uh, uh, conservatory during this the production of this film and decided to audition with a few of his opera buddies 
So he revealed, not that long ago actually, he revealed that he didn't expect to move into his acting career so quickly and went up to San Francisco to another conservatory immediately after filming his scenes. So the man had a fucking voice. He loved to sing. Um, didn't really pan out, but still, gotta respect the hustle. So Brad's now working at Captain Hook and Fish, Captain Hulk Fish and Chips, and he's got, I don't know, this ridiculous fucking pirate getup and shit. Um, yeah, you can just tell it's a shittier job. Like it's, like, it's a fast food job, but at the other place, the boss liked him, and he had pull. You have to wear a ridiculous outfit. Like, you know, you can just tell he hates this place. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Linda and Stacy are by the pool. Linda keeps mentioning this older guy, Doug, again, continuously. And he's, she says that he's going to be back in town soon. So then Damone and Mark invite themselves in to go for a little swim. Um, Brad comes home. And we get one of the film's most iconic moments. Yeah, definitely uh, one of the most uh, watched moments by uh, you know any of the guys out there, or uh, you know gay girls. <laughs> I think one of the most watched scenes. I think everybody knows this one. Yeah. Um. I think I had a note about that actually. Well, I just want to say, like, before having seen the scene, I had heard about it. Like, I had heard about the pole scene. But uh, I think there was a commercial that, like, parodied it. And I didn't know what it was about until after I watched the movie. There, I don't remember what the commercial was, but it, you know, it kind of parodied uh, this whole thing. You know, the whole Phoebe Kate's getting out, right. um, out of the pole. So it was just kind of funny actually seeing the movie and actually seeing what it's parodying. Um, where am I at here? Yeah, so there's an there was an unused take. Uh, the Cameron Crow said left studio executives laughing in, in shock. Uh, which he revealed on uh, the Dan Patrick show. There was one take that director Amy Heckelin did just for the uh, studio, where the camera pans down to judge. And let's say that he was carrying a very large accessory that didn't make it into the movie, but made people laugh in shock. So he was alluding to a big like, fucking dildo that he was stroking. And they, they panned down to reveal it and got a lot of people laughing, apparently. Shit would never fly for in, in, in a million years today, but still, back then... You do you. And hey, man, Amy, Amy Hackling's a female director, and she was in on it. She thought it was funny, so. Um, she stated that she got Phoebe Cates to overcome her fear of doing the topless scene by assuring the actress that it would be for a few seconds and thus wouldn't allow, pe- that wouldn't allow people much time to stare. Ironically, <laughs> in the following years, during the era of videotape of movies, it become a running joke at many stores, like I said before. Throwing that scene had the the um the the, the wear, the excessive wear from yeah. You from would have Paul's. the tracking noise. And yeah, everything. yeah, right. It was. It is kind of funny because like this movie was made in the early '80s, but it just shows you how quick uh, VHS and Beta took over. Because obviously, 
I mean, I think they were around in the early 80s. Right. But it definitely wasn't ubiquitous until the mid 80s. It was just funny. This movie came out in 82, shot in, I'm assuming, 80 or 81. So, you know, just back then, like, probably nobody really had VHS because they were crazy expensive, the players and the tapes. Uh, and But just how quick it became, you know, everywhere. And then obviously it's one of the most paused and rewatched for obvious reasons scenes <laughs> Phoebe Kate. So it is kind of funny to think <laughs> that, Oh, it'll only be a few seconds. Right. Oh, it's on loop. Oh <laughs> uh, shit. What are we at here? I mean, who didn't have a crush on Phoebe Kate's back in the day? Like, you know, this and gremlins. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I personally love Phoebe Kate's back in the day. Yeah, same. Uh, for me, it was Gremlins that started that. I was a big Gremlins fan. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, and you know, I mean, that was when I, like I said before, I was late to this movie a little bit. Yeah, that was one. Gremlins is one I actually saw when I was a kid. So yeah, yeah. Um, so back at school, we see Damone help Stacy pop her locker open, showcasing something going on between the two. Uh, and then we get our Taylor Negron cameo, fucking playing the pizza man. He comes in delivering the pizza during class for Spicoli. That prompts the <laughs> hand starts passing out slices of pizza, saying, "Uh, they're gonna enjoy a little feast on his on our time." <laughs> yeah, I I just love Sean Penn's uh, face when Mister Hand takes the pizza and starts handing it out. You could tell. Uh, all Spicoli's thinking is, man, I just want some of that pizza now. <laughs> Everybody else is eating. It's just such a dick move by Mr. Hand. But, you know, I can't blame him because Spicoli, obviously. What do you think was going to happen? I love the delivery guy actually came to a room. Like, I don't know of too many pizza delivery guys that would actually go to, like, a classroom in a school, even back in the 80s. Yeah. All right. Um, I fucking love Taylor, dude. He's great. Um, Stacy tells Damone she really likes him. They go back to her place and stuff happens. Damone's minute man moment in the changing room, which kind of freaks Stacy out a little bit afterwards. Um, <laughs> he just like basically gets on top of her and has like a seizure. Yes. He's like, I gotta go. <laughs> oh man, I gotta go, Stacy. Uh, so how do we feel about Somebody's Baby being the official theme song for all of Stacey's sexual encounters? <laughs> I mean, it's memorable. I definitely tie that song to, you know, Stacey having sex. It's like, I mean, I guess it it's like the only time we hear it was she's when she's getting down with people. So, yeah, apparently I, I wasn't paying close enough attention to some of these characters in this film. because so we got four songs that are heard throughout the film that are associated themes for four different people. Um, we got I Don't Know for Jess McCauley, Moving in a Stereo for Linda Barrett, Somebody's Baby for Stacy, and Waffle Stomp for Brad. So, yeah. Look it up, gang. The Damone Stacy sex scene Included the shot of Damone undressed that included full frontal nudity. Contrary to popular belief, 
That shot was not cut from the film to avoid an X. It remains in the film, but is reframed to crop the nudity out. So, there's that for all you carnivores out there. Um, let's see here. Uh, so, then we get Stacy asking Linda how long Doug usually takes while they're... <laughs> While they're slicing this massive roll of meat, like, what is that, sausage? Like, the massive fucking length or uh, width fucking meat. Uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, Brad's boss, played by the late producer, Stuart Kornfeld, who produced a ton of thousands, com- thousands, two thousands comedies, especially from Todd Phillips. He was also the cab driver in old school. He's like, there's no seatbelt back here. What do you suppose I do? I suppose he's like, I, um, I suppose you stop being a f bomb. He's like, you're in the back seat, that guy. Um, he plays Brad's boss here, making him drive and order in uniform. Um, yeah. And then he encounters Hearts Nancy Wilson bef- uh, on the way. She's the woman who's smiling at him and shit. She's yeah, it's the singer for Heart. And he just says, fuck this, and quits mid-drive, throws his hat out and shit, because she laughs at him, and he's like, fuck this. Yeah, she laughs at him, and he tries to eat the fish, and he, like, spits it out. Like, <laughs> That's I, I right, like that I forgot about it. that. It tastes like shit, he just spits it out. Uh, I just think it's, like, hilarious, because I would not wear that thing outside. I don't care what my boss said, I would just walk out of that place and take that shit right oh, off. Oh, God, like, yeah. I don't care. I don't care if I'm on the clock. I'm not wearing that ridiculous shit out on the street. It's one thing to wear it in the restaurant, but I'm not wearing it out on the street. All right. So we got Demo now. It's a common theme with this guy. We just keep seeing him doing creepy ball shit left and right. He's now picking up a girl with cheap tickets. Uh, And then this is when Stacy pulls up next to him and is like, hey, I'm pregnant. He's like, uh, <laughs> doesn't take the news considerably. He's kind of like just being inconsiderate and then mentions and then board. Blames it on her. Blames it on her. She makes him take it back, which he does, thankfully. But still, you're still a fuckhead. This movie. 150 Yeah, bucks. this movie takes a right hand turn. A sharp right turn. Like you got this like comedy uh, 80s teen movie and then boom, abortion. And look. Let's, let's talk about that, because that's what we do here. And the reason for that is because, you know, it's a reminder that, you know, this is still, this is a comedy, but this is also real life based off of things that, um, you know, Cameron Crowe saw with his own two eyes. Um, you know, this is based off of personal records, you know. So, this is stuff that happened, unfortunately. And, you know, I, I commend Heckling and Crow for bringing that to the spotlight because it's a real thing. We're, we're, you know, yes, it does take a sharp left turn, but, you know, so does life when you least expect it. You know, think of these characters here, you know, for as goofy as, you know, the, the, the subplot may look to some. There were situations where Damone and, and Stacy, things like that between people similar to them happened, and next thing you know, boom, pregnant. You know, they weren't expecting that. 
so I, I commend again, you know, the, the the makers and and Universal for allowing it, you know, because this is real, and you didn't see this often in films like this back there around this time. This was tackling real life situations that, uh, quite frankly, a lot of audience members weren't prepared to see. You know, you go, you go into a movie expecting Fast Times at Ridgemont High, a bunch of stoners and and goofiness. This is the last thing you expect is this, like, serious fucking dark fucking turn to abortion territory. But, you know. Yeah. And it's re- it's relevant yeah. even today with, with the whole Roe versus Wade, you know, decision, which I'm not going to get into because it's going to take in a whole other podcast uh, in its own. But it's uh, just a relevant s- situation. Here we are four years later, and it's still just as relevant today as it was then. Yeah, it's just interesting because I I keep saying this, but I don't think this would happen nowadays. Like either the movie would be like about, you know, political type stuff and abortion. Like either the movie would be serious with that or it would be a teen comedy and not have any of this. I feel like nowadays somebody wouldn't take their uh, throwback teen comedy and then have abortion a serious like teen pregnancy and abortion. Like it is just kind of. I'm not saying it in a bad way, but it is just kind of jarring, like especially no, no. Uh, watching it for the first time. I just did not expect that. I mean, it it kind of gives it like a PSA type thing, like an after school special almost here. Right. So and I'm not saying it in a bad I way. Know. It makes the movie, de- it definitely makes the movie unique in that fact. <laughs> you don't see that in a lot of movies like that. Yeah, I didn't take it that way, definitely. And and, and no one should either because, you know, it it's, you know, jarring to go way of putting it because it is. It's all about that emotion that you're hit, that, that hits you at first. And you're right. A lot of a lot of today's films would never touch this because it just they're all about the vibe. And, and, and I just don't think they look at it differently today. And it's unfortunate because it's it's real. It's real, you know, and like I said, even today, it's it's just the conversation's just as relevant today as it was in 1982. Um, but yeah, it's real shit. So anyway, Damone tries to make phone calls to to come up with 150 bucks, or no, half. All he needs is 75. Shit, you can't even you can't even do that. Um, so he fucking stands her up, and yeah. She, what a terrible thing. Yeah. Like, Damone, like, up until this point, I like Damone, but yeah, when he does that, that's just a scumbag move to not even show up. Yeah. He, even though he doesn't have the money. She even calls, and his mother says that he's out in the garage helping his father, and he'll call her later. So he gets Brad, she gets Brad to take her, and he watches her from his rearview mirror across the street after he drops her off so he knows that she's full of shit because she says she says she's going bowling with her friends because then he comes back when she comes outside afterwards he's just standing there by his car and he's like since when do you go bowling (laughs) you know so you know how long did he think that he was going to be able to hide from her when they're in the same freaking class you know, like, yeah. the moon, what the fuck's he thinking? Like, 
I know he's definitely thinking in the moment, but still, like, long-term, this is a horrible decision. You can't run and hide forever. You're all in the same fucking class. So, you're yeah. bound to cross paths eventually. And every time he, she does try to cross paths with him, he fucking, like, runs or ducks and covers. Or he's short with her, and he's like, yeah, you gotta run. You know, it's like, what the fuck? Um, That's how teens do it, though. Like, uh, you know, they... I mean, I know adults that would probably act oh, like that. Too. Like, I like something bad, and then yeah. they just ghost them and don't talk to them. Yeah. You know? Oh, and real quick, the, I, something else I wanted to mention before, the other conversation about, you know, movies nowadays not having this. You know, it's not like we see, like, American Pie with, like, this sudden, you know, abortion subplot that happens, like, midway through. <laughs> you know, it's like... I know. Uh-oh. <laughs> Nadia gave you an STD <laughs> or something, like... You have AIDS. Like it's just. That's the real <laughs> reason. That that's Park. the true reason she went back to her home country. Oh shit! So that's the really unrated version of that film. Uh, but no, back to this. You know, I totally buy Reinhold and Jennifer Jason Lee as like legit brother and sister. Like I love their family yeah, bond chemistry. chemistry. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. You know, I love it. Like it feels natural between these two. Like I buy these two characters being brother and sister. So, um, let's see, Linda, Phoebe Cates, she writes prick outside of Damone's, you know, 73 gremlin. He covers it up with taped cardboard and then he goes back to uh, school and he sees a little prick written on his locker. So he's hiding that with his notebook. Um, again, mm-hmm. you cannot run this, like, you can't run forever, motherfucker. So Mark confronts him in the in the shower, and this leads to Mark finally getting a well-deserved monologue off his chest before a minor fight. And afterwards, we get the moon saying, "I woke up in a great mood, and now I don't and, and, and I don't even no." The moon says, "I woke up in a great mood, and I don't know what the hell happened." That's what he says, and it's like all about you, motherfucker. So. We get this random medical field trip with Mr. Vargas featuring a cameo from director Martin Brest. He's the director that, uh, he's the doctor that Vargas introduces everybody to. Um, <laughs> Spicoli, hey, are you in my class? I am today. <laughs> but yeah. I didn't re- I just love Spicoli, just wants the field trip. <laughs> I never knew that. Uh, I just found this out just recently that that, that uh, the doctor is played by Martin Brest. You know who Martin Brest is? He went on to direct um, Beverly Hills Cop, the first one, and then he um, he also did uh, Micho Black. He did Scent of a Woman, which is a big one for him. Uh, Midnight Run, that's that's going to be the one that fucking Sean and Justin uh, remember him in the most for. But he hasn't done a film in almost yeah. 20 years. His last film was Geely. So... <laughs> <clears throat> The yeah. <laughs> chili sucks to have that. It's kind of funny. Same thing as Cameron Crow. Like <laughs> Cameron Crow hasn't done one since Aloha. Then yeah, and done one since Geely. That's kind of funny. Have you ever seen Geely? Like yeah, I like remember all jokes thinking aside, it was Have you seen okay. it? Okay. I rented it back when it Same came here. out because I worked at the video Same. store. It was okay. I was just like, whatever. Yeah, it's, I didn't. It's not I good. didn't get the hate. Like I didn't like it, but I didn't hate it. Like I just thought it was like. I've seen plenty of worse films that deserve worse raps than what this one got. 
I mean, it, that that film literally destroyed careers. You know, it, it broke up Benefer for the longest time. Well, either that or Jersey Girl, but still, you know. <laughs> um, I, I had to get a Jersey Girl quip in there. I, I'm a Jersey Girl fan, for the record. I, I really do like that movie a lot. I think it's underrated. But uh, anyway, yeah. um, Mark confronts Stacy after she leaves the group because she's sick. Um, the two seem to be hitting it off all over again. So that's good. Mike's Mark's now in play again. I like that. I like Mark. So it's now the end of the school year already, and we get the montage of classes taking the final exams, and we get the kids using various ways to cheat. We you got answers, mm-hmm. answers behind the sunglasses, straight up looking over other people's students, uh, other students' shoulders for the answers. You know, we get up, you get a bunch of stuff in this, this scene here. Um, and then Spicoli's getting ready to head to the dance. He's on the phone. He beats his head at the sneaker. You hear that? That was my skull. I'm so wasted. <laughs> Mr. Hand shows up and informs him that he must make up the, the eight hours of class time that he wasted over the school year. Don't you just love it when school teachers have the ability to come to your house on a, on, uninvited and just expect you to drop everything you're doing to just learn. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, what the well, fuck are you doing I, here? Nice to see you, Mr. Hand, but fuck off. It's completely ridiculous, but still hilarious, the fact that Mr. <laughs> Hand's like, you wasted my time, so now I'm it's, here to waste is, yours, motherfucker. It is pretty funny in, in, in concept alone. <laughs> they, have a, they have a history session that lasts until Mr. Hand is satisfied that Spicoli has understood the, the lesson. And the two show that they respect each other. Um, uh, yeah, the shoe that he hits yeah. himself with, the checkerboard canvas vans, that became a national brand soon after. Like it pretty much did for vans what ET did for Reese's Pieces. I do, yeah. I do know that. I mean, they. That's still one of their mainstays. Like you still go into a van store or a shoe store, and they still have the checkerboard. Like I had a pair at one point. Like. Yeah, it's definitely iconic, and, like, it's cool seeing, like, the old off-the-wall box, because obviously they still have, like, that brand off-the-wall, but it's cool seeing, like, the, you know, the OG version here with uh, Spicoli before it kind of mm-hmm. uh, became more mainstream. Yeah, right. So it's kind of interesting. But uh, you you mentioned, I do like the whole end of the scene with Mr. Hand and Spicoli, because, yeah, he's a hard-ass Mr. Hand, but, like, he still lets Spicoli get out in time to still make it to the dance. Yeah, he's uh, cool. You know, the big prom. So, like, you know, obviously Mr. Hand's there to get his time back and teach Spicoli a lesson, uh, but he wasn't a complete uh, douche, like, in hard ass. Like, he still lets him get out. So I do like the fact that they end with, like, that general respect and kind of, like, you know, Mr. Hand's like, oh, you're not my problem anymore. You're going to squeak by, you know, with, with, like, your D minus or whatever. Yeah. Spicoli will move on. So then we get the last dance, a.k.a. the prom. Mark and Damone make up after Damone apologizes to Mark. And then we see that Mr. Vargas' wife is there with him. And I only bring this up <laughs> because she's played by Alana Clarkson, who was famously murdered by Phil Spector back in 2003. Like, this is that woman, that actress. Um, and then Spicoli and his friends arrive in smoking fashion. And according to Heckling, Sean Penn and pals were actually smoking marijuana in the van as they came out for the prom. 
Now, Cameron <laughs> Crowe shares a story from the Uncool, uh, which is like his fan site, about the final day of shooting. Most of the write-up is about being nostalgic and proud of what they accomplished, but there's a brief line about Sean Penn that was just too good to pass up. Sean Penn, who'd been in character the entire film, arrived in a brown corduroy jacket and introduced himself. I'm Sean, he announced. Even while filming this, the shoot in the film, Sean Penn was so into character that he only entered Spicoli. In fact, the door on his dressing room was labeled Spicoli instead of Sean Penn. So, yeah, imagine being this guy who just is in character. He's being Spicoli for all this, you know, however long, however many days or weeks it took to film the film. And you being on set all the time because you're the writer, Cameron Crowe, like, you're expecting him to be, like, goofy and shit. And then, like, randomly he comes up to you one day and he just breaks character like, Hi, I'm Sean. (laughs) Like, wait, what the fuck? Are you fucking with me right now? (laughs) Pleasant to be pleased. I mean, Sean Penn's definitely a troll. Pleased to meet you. Like, it I'm doesn't Sean. surprise me. So, yeah. uh, Linda reveals to Stacy that she's breaking up with Doug. Ooh, how convenient. And now she can date whoever she wants. So, we see everyone enjoying the dance while the band that's on stage covers Wooly Bully. And there's several hints now. I'm going to break down this Doug, this boyfriend of Linda's. He's fiction, total bullshit. Linda changes the story about him several times, including the conversation on how long it takes from the climax. If you watch the film, and like he, she brings him up at least four or five times. Every single time she brings him up, there's an inconsistency. And it just, every time, it just contradicts the previous story. Anyway, that's my rant about this Doug. Back at work, Mark and... How about you? What do you think about Doug? What's your take on Doug? You think Doug's real or is he total bullshit? I believe that maybe she got with a guy one night that was named Doug or something like that. And then I think the rest of the story is just bullshit in her head. Like maybe she got with a college guy one night and it was a Doug. And then the rest of the story is just bullshit in her head. That's what I think. Back at work, Mark and Stacy make amends after she tells Linda that she doesn't want sex. And then she waves Mark over from the theater where he's working she says that she wants romance, you know, in a relationship. So the two of them make up. And um, then we get this scene here with uh, Brad. He's now working at this convenience store. And James Russo, speaking of Beverly Hills Cop, he's like the best friend of uh, Eddie Murphy. He gets killed in the beginning. That sets off the chain of events for the mil- for the movie. He plays the, the, the robber here. And... Spicoli's there and he gets hit in the face the robber James Russo with hot coffee and Spicoli acts as like this stoned wise man from the film like he's Universal even wanted Spicoli goes to college like almost after this film was like filmed um (laughs) you know that clearly that's what they've centered a lot of this film on even though he's only a secondary character so, uh, and then, yeah, what follows that is the end montage. Uh, Brad May manager of the MT Mart that he works at. Uh, Damone is busted scalping Ozzy Osbourne tickets and forced to take a job at 7-Eleven. Mr. Vargas switched back to coffee. Linda attends college in Riverside and moves in with her abnormal psychology teacher. 
Uh, Mark and Stacy have a passionate love affair, but still haven't gone all the way. Spicoli saves Brooke Shields from drowning and blows the reward money, hiring rock band Van Halen to play his birthday party. And finally, Mr. <laughs> Han maintains his belief that everyone is on dope. Yeah, I just love that you get the little blurbs at the end about everybody. And, you know, the first time I was watching this movie, the convenience store, I really thought Brad was going to die. <laughs> I really did. Just the way this movie was like so far, like you had the whole, uh, you know, pregnancy and abortion. Like, I just thought Brad was going to die for some reason or get shot or something like that. And Spicoli was going to, like, make the save. Like, honestly, that's what I really thought was going to happen. Just a random, like, original Clerks ending-esque scene. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, also, I love, um, you know, the interaction between Brad and Spicoli. He's like, don't you need, you know, money? <laughs> and Spicoli's <laughs> like, I just need a buzz and some tasty waves. Like, I just, yes. the way Sean Penn delivers it is just awesome. Like I said, he's the wise man, dude. It's great. Yeah, that's it. Because it's, they're supposed to be having fun. Like, Brad, I'm not, because I worked in high school too. I get it. But looking back on it, like, you are supposed to be having fun. You're not supposed to be worried about money and working uh when you're in high school you know yeah and that's fast times ridgemont high from amy heckerlin and cameron crow let's move on to box office receipts in the operational funds box we will deposit two hundred and fifty thousand american dollars you take it out we put more in i want receipts uh the film came out August 13th, 1982 from Universal Pictures, released upon 498 screens, grossing $2.5 million opening weekend. That was enough to open up in 7th place. Second weekend, maintained that 7th sec- that place position, also maintained the, the numbers pretty much. It only dropped 1.3%, $2.5 million as well, second weekend. Total gross was $27.1 million against a budget of only $5 million. Yeah, man. Made five times the money. It definitely uh, was, a, was a fucking win for Universal. And everyone involved, too. So, I know this got heckling the European vacation job after this, for better or worse. We're not going to talk about that movie itself. And Cameron Crowe, it pretty much just opened up the, the books for him. He could do whatever he wanted and he did more so so he just moved on from writing well he still maintained the writing for his work but he moved up to uh directing instead of just writing his job his uh stories yeah. he directed him too so yeah this was a launch board for a lot of people and yes. then you know like you said the box office was good uh but the the video uh tapes too i'm sure was a big thing oh maybe not now but in a few years Corey, there's like no I, doubt in my I'm mind sure if you add all the numbers up now today it's probably about 60 to 70 million dollars total so and again five million dollar budget so um yeah that's pretty much it you know made made good made some decent change so now that we know all that, let's move on to something else and talk about the film's reception. And to do that, we're going to head to the Critics Corner and see what they had to say about the film.
Alright, so the film's got a Rotten Tomato score of 78% based on 54 reviews with a critical consensus that says while Fast Times at Ridgemont High features Sean Penn's legendary performance, the film endures it because it accurately captured the small details of school, work, and teenage life. It's got a meta score of 61 out of 100 based on 21 reviews. And e, you know what? Ebs. Oh, man. Ebs, 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 Ebs. One star out of four. Called it a scuzz pit of a movie, but praised the performances by Lee, Penn, Cates, and Reinhold. He said, how could they do this to Jennifer Jason Lee? How could they put such a fresh and cheerful person into such a scuzz pit of a movie? Well, Ebs, it's called direction. It's called mixing it up. It's called range, you know? Um, Jennifer Maslin gave it 3 out of 5 and wrote that it was a jumbled but appealing teenage comedy with something of a fresh perspective on the subject. James Perardinelli gave it 3 out of 4 and said Fast Times will always be remembered for one thing, showing respect for and insight and into its member into the members of its core audience, something that was a rare something that was as rare in the 1980s as it is today. As time went on, however, the film was increasingly seen as a classic. In an essay written for Criterion in, in 2001, I'm sorry. In an essay written for the Criterion Collection in 2021, which is what I used to watch it this time around, uh, critic Dana Stevens wrote, Fast Times is the polar opposite of exploration. Deep into its horny heart, this is the story of one 15-year-old girl's clumsy and sometimes painful introduction to the world of sex related without judgment or preconception or the least hint of sentimentalization. Heckling's film is a raunchy crowd-pleaser, replete with stoner humor, a masturbation gag, and a blowjob tutorial that that makes use of school cafeteria carrots. But it is also attuned to the emotional lives of teenagers, boys and girls, in which that place in in ways that place it far ahead of its time. And that's what we talked about earlier, how the film can be funny, but then something really come something comes out of left field, but it's real. Um and that's life, you know. That that just harkens back to what I said about just life happening around the corner and you're not ex- not expecting it or seeing it coming it that that that's just the way the cookie crumbles as they say so um that being said let's move on from reception and talk about the music a little bit in our in our in our category music from the motion picture soundtrack music from the motion picture overall i love this soundtrack um there's a lot of 80s soundtracks out there, um, films rather, that had great soundtracks. This being one of them, um, it's up there as like a top tier 80s soundtrack for me. Um, it's it's legacy, it's just unlike any other. Uh, first off, the soundtrack came out a couple weeks before the film itself. The, uh, it came out July 30th of 82. Peaked at number 54 on the Billboard 200. It Featured the work of many artists, including Jackson Brown's Somebody's Baby, which was number seven on the top 100 charts. Uh, we had the title track by Sammy Hagar, uh, a cover of The Times, So Much in Love by Timothy B. Schmidt, which was also a t- uh, top 100 charter, number 59. Raced on the radio by The Ravens and Waffle Stomp by Joe Walsh. 
the Eagles, Don Headley, Don Felder, um, Jimmy Buffett, Boingo Boingo, a lot of stuff. There were even songs that were in the film but not on the soundtrack, like Moving in a Stereo by the Cars, American Girl from Tom Petty is not on the soundtrack. Same goes for We Got the Beat, which is kind of shocking to me. I always thought We Got the Beat was on the soundtrack because that song was so popular. Like, I work at retail and there's a music player that loops every few hours and one of the songs that are always played is We Got the Beat. So I got to hear that like a handful of times every fucking day I work. Um, <laughs> it's a good song though. So, and naturally Probably I think... just it, a rights thing. But naturally I think of this movie every time I think hear that song. Because again, it's the song that kicks off the film. It's the opening theme. Of course, we mentioned it earlier, we got Led Zeppelin's Cashmere, Jingle Bell Rock, we hear that during the montage of Christmas at the mall, the Eagles, Life in the Fast Lane, and Sam and Sham, Sam the Shams, Wooly Wooly, were uh, two songs that we hear played, but again, not on the soundtrack. In the audio commentary for the DVD, Heckerling stated that 70s artists like the Eagles were introduced by one of the film's producers, um, coincidentally, Irving Azoff, one of the film's producers, was the personal manager of the Eagles and Stevie Nicks. Um, so yeah, the soundtrack, I mean, we're, 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 and then the legacy, like, it's an essential 80s soundtrack at a time when soundtracks actually meant something, like, I don't know about you, Corey, but I miss me a good soundtrack where they were seriously the best part of the film's release process or release cycle whatever you want to call it rather um you know yeah i just remember back to the blockbuster days like when they had all the soundtracks and cds up at yes. the front uh when you were getting checked out like they would have all the different ones i remember when blockbuster I mean, tried it, music they tried yeah and it started out with uh soundtracks you know that i think that's where the genesis oh, of, of it was but it's just kind of funny because you're right like some of the soundtracks like they would be as big as the movies like you know people go seek out the soundtrack having never even seen the movie just because they like the mix of uh songs because you didn't have everything digitally on demand like you do nowadays um so it's just always kind of interesting because you know you would always see that be like uh the, the soundtrack is released on this record label this from this major motion picture like you would see commercials and stuff like that it's just yeah it's just a bygone era you just don't see it anymore my first cd compact disc was the batman forever soundtrack christmas <laughs> christmas of 95 um fun fact my second cd ever was the ace ventura when nature calls soundtrack <laughs> jesus christ Got worse. These were Christmas, really. I got these for Christmas, okay? Now, first off, fuck you. Batman Forever is a legit soundtrack. I don't know if you've ever heard it before, or I don't know if it's been a while. Check it out. It's good stuff. No, it, it, I know everybody's just going to think of uh, Kiss, Kiss from a Rose. Kiss from a Rose. Right. But no, it has. I like There's the soundtrack. I, an I, excellent just... cover of The Damned Smash It Up by The Offspring on that soundtrack. U2's got that song, Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, whatever it's called. The song is fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, PJ Harvey's on that soundtrack. There's some good songs on the Batman Forever soundtrack. You know, Steel Aside. I just don't know. 
I don't know if that would be the first CD. I'd <laughs> well, want. it was uh, it was you know. my cousin. It was it happened to be the first present that I opened because it looked like a CD, and sure enough, it was. <laughs> what does that like to listen to? <laughs> I don't know. Get on that Batman Forever soundtrack. It I has probably all kinds said of music. something about. I probably planted you know something in their heads around the holidays, like. I probably made a passing comment about Seal or something. I don't know, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I I just, yeah, my brother, I mean, my brother agrees with you. He thinks the Batman soundtrack rocks. So it, it does. You're not alone there. It kicks ass. Um, but no, um, the, and, and this soundtrack in particular, I've always, you know, really, really liked. But uh, what's your favorite song on the Fast Time soundtrack? Eh, I don't know. They're I mean, we so got the good. beat is definitely. I like the soundtrack. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. It's got I'm a got. Gotta, it's got I'm a lot of great songs. Uh, but we got the beat is the one that I think of just because of the opening. It's not on uh, the soundtrack. I know it's not. Oh. But that's what I think of. Oh, 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 oh! <laughs> I thought you were saying that was your answer. I'm like, wait a minute. That's just like when you, you know. It, if I listen to any song and think of this movie, it would be that right. uh, just because that's the way it opens. And also American girl. I, like that was the first Love time I song. like that song really stung out to me in this film. So yeah, it's got a lot of good music though. I mean, it's a great soundtrack. It's, uh, it's just like a classic eighties soundtrack it has a good mix. Like, yes. it, you know, it has like some more modern stuff, older stuff. I think that's a good soundtrack when it has a good mix of different things. And it just, uh, like camera crow always does. It always goes well with the movie. Right. I mean, the, there's certain directors that just have an ear for music in their films. And he's definitely one of them. One of the best. Couldn't agree more. So, all right. Um, let's move on to pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Pros. The comedy still holds up. I think this movie's funny as shit, legit. Uh, the the solid writing from Cameron Crowe, of course. We talked about that earlier. All-star cast. Great soundtrack. Um, the 80s, done correct. That's This is what this is. This is an example of the 80s being done correctly, in my opinion. Um, and I think it handles real-life situations correctly. So, um, Corey, what are your pros? Mine are pretty similar. I, I thought so. Uh, my number one, yeah, my number one would be the performances. I think that's really what pushes this movie over. Uh, you know, obviously, everything else is good in the movie, but I think if you take away some of the strong performances from, like, Jennifer Jason Lee or obviously Sean Penn's iconic performance or Ray Walls, uh, Ray Walston. Like it's just, there's so many great performances here. Like that just has to be my number one. Like just watching all these actors just knock it out of the park. Like everybody's great. Even like Damone. I love, uh, Damone. I can't think of the, I, I, I know he's like a, been in other stuff, but I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Um, but Robert like all the Romanus. characters are great. Yeah, like all the characters are great in the film. Like the main characters and the secondary, like everybody's great in their own way. And, you know, they seem like real teenagers. Like obviously it's a little bit, 
exaggerated and stylized, but that really is how school was. Like you would have, you know, like your nerdy guy and then your kind of shady guy who kind of sells stuff on the side. And then your girl who's more promiscuous and then your shy girl. Like it's just the way it was. Like you just had different people in your life. And that's why I appreciate this and their performances. Yeah, They weren't, they, Um, you know, a lot of people are going to point to like, there's, you know, being a certain class or like typecast stereotype and shit. And what? No, like that's the thing. These were real things. Like, is it cliche? Yes, but it's the truth. That's how these things were. There were groups, and everyone were separated by you know how they associated. So, yeah. Um, my next one is just the pacing. Like, it is just such a quick and easy movie to watch. Like, I just appreciate any movie that just keeps moving along. Like, this stretches the whole school year, but. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be like a long epic two hours. Like you just get the highlights it in this does film. It so I just in less appre- than ninety. Yeah, I just appreciate the highlights, and it's all high spots. Like there's no bad part of this film. Like it's honestly hard for me to pick a favorite part, just because it's all so good and consistent throughout. Mm-hmm. So definitely the pacing. And then my last one is I just appreciate the writing in this film. Uh, you know, I like the fact that it takes a little bit of chances having the pregnancy and the abortion, you know, I forgot how serious and kind of realistically it was handled. I mean, that's really what a girl would do back then. She would try to get money from, you know, whoever got her pregnant or whoever she could get a ride from somebody and, you know, go deal with it. Like that's realistically how it goes down a lot. So I, I appreciate that. Cause it, you know, it has all the fun stuff and all the teens and the sex and comedy but then it also has like this morality tell towards the end where, you know, you see Stacy dealing with this and then it, by the end she realizes she just wants a boyfriend right. and to be with somebody. She doesn't want to have sex anymore. So I do like the morality tale kind of at the end. It's not all just dumb fun. So that would probably be my last pro. I just I, re- I like the writing and just the way the story's told. Uh, it has a little bit more depth. I'm not saying this movie's deep, but it just has a little bit more depth than your standard 80s teen comedy, and that's what I appreciate. All right. Let's move on then to the cons. I've only got two. Um, the underage stuff is pretty uncomfortable still to this day for me, and the short runtime. And I, I mentioned the short runtime because obviously I would like there to be more. Um, and I'm kind of surprised that we weren't given more, given that this was, you know, take based off a personal take by Cameron Crowe, you would have thought he had a more documented that would have led to more just story being written out. So, I don't know. Those are the only two, though. The underage stuff being a tad uncomfortable for me. And that's just a natural reaction. And the short run time, because, again, I you can also chalk that up to being... You can turn that into a pro by just saying, you, you say that because you want the... You want more, you know? I know I want more when I watch this sometimes. So, yeah, short run time, underage stuff, everything else, you know, we're good. How about you? Yeah, I mean, they're not major cons. Like, I think this movie, for what it is, is pretty close to being, I don't want to say it's a perfect movie, but I think it nails what it's trying to do so well. But uh, one of the main cons is just, it's, it's definitely dated, like, I think a young person could still watch this and have fun and laugh, 
but there's definitely jokes like you brought it up about like the sniffing paper. I'll be honest. I had no fucking clue what that was the first time I saw it. Like there's just certain (laughs) things because it's 40 years old. Like it is what it is, but it definitely has some dated references. Uh, like you said about the fries at the beginning, like it was a joke, like nobody would get that nowadays. Like you would have to be our parents age probably to get that joke. Right. You know, so there's certain things where it's definitely a little bit dated. Uh, you know, and all films are a product of their time, but I, this one has a couple spots where, yeah, it's definitely a little dated. Uh, but I still think you can overall enjoy it, even if you're younger and didn't grow up during this time or didn't see it when you were uh, younger. I mean, we watched it in the early 2000s, still had a fun time. I mean, it's still got uh, enough to offer. But, you know, if you're asking me to nitpick, there is some dated stuff in here. And then my other con is same as yours. It's very uncomfortable watching uh, somebody portray a 15 year old and then, uh, you know, get with a 26 year old. you. Know, you know, maybe they could go back in and dub it and make her like 17 or something like that. Maybe it's not quite as bad. I mean, it's still bad. But yeah, 15 it, as somebody who's a parent. I mean, I have a son, but either way, as somebody who's a parent, like it just makes my skin crawl a little bit here on that nowadays. It didn't so much when I was younger, but I guess that's just me getting old. Uh, Yeah, I just don't like hearing that. I don't like that whole part of it. I don't know. I wish you would have just could have been older. I guess, you know. All right, let's move on to modern cancellations. Someone just got canceled. Someone just got canceled. Someone just got canceled. I wonder what they did. Oh, shit. Who gets canceled by today's cancel culture? Where to begin? Um, I believe Damone would be canceled in an instant if this was 2022. Believe that shit. Um, there's some things that maybe Spicoli might do or say that could get him in trouble, but I'm going to go back to Mike and, and say Damone, um, you know, it's just the shit that he did in the movies, just stuff that would get you canceled today and 82. It's just unforgivable stuff. The way he stands around and the way he just runs from the whole abortion thing like he's just just fucking scaredy cat pussy boy so that's who i'm sticking to i'm sticking to to moan to moan to moan to moan to moan how about you Corey? yeah i mean there's a lot i could do cancellations for um but i surprisingly my answer would still be to moan as well but for a different reason okay what's up Timon is selling scalp tickets. Well, as we all know nowadays, Ticketmaster gets their cut one way or another. Ticketmaster is fucking everywhere, and they will make their oh. uh, ridiculous service fee off of every ticket. So I think eventually, eventually Ticketmaster just pulls up in an unrock van and gets rid of Timon. Like I just don't see him uh, making it there. Uh, you know, Ticketmaster don't fuck around. Like they weren't around back in the early '80s, but they're around now and they're everywhere. You can't avoid them. Ask Pearl Jam about that shit. Pearl Jam. It's funny you mentioned them. You, hear, did, fucking, you know about well, that? Well, I knew Cameron Crowe was like pretty good friends with them. Well, I wasn't even talking about that. Like Pearl Jam, apparently, I, I don't. I think it was like the late nineties, early two thousands, was trying to boycott Ticketmaster, and they're like they <laughs> were trying to like basically do their tour of the U.S. without Ticketmaster, right. and they couldn't. 
because Ticketmaster has like these contracts with all the big yeah, venues. IMP, Live Nation. Yeah, like the venues have to use Ticketmaster. So like yeah. literally for Pearl Jam to tour, like they'd have been like playing in fucking fields in random fucking places because everywhere you have to do Ticketmaster. Yeah. So they ended up having a to lot do of it. venues have contracts like that with vendors, like for ticket vendors. I mean, like I mentioned, the two IMP and and, and um, Live Nation. You know, fuck you, Ticketmaster. Like it's bullshit. Like you pay twenty dollars for the ticket, and then it's fucking fifteen dollars service fee or whatever. Always been like that, though. It's nothing new. It's bullshit. Yeah, it's bullshit. It is. So, anyway, let's move on then to Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? All right, so hear me out on this one. Because the whole Ridgemont-Lincoln feud is only glossed over in the final cut, I've always felt that rivalry needed more to it. Like, I mean, come on. We see the whole school wearing fucking Kill Lincoln shirts. There's got to be more to this. You following me? I've, I've, I yeah. just feel like that if we're going to do something smart... And we're going to add to the 90 minutes, well, 87 minutes technically. We can do this. We, we, we can, you know, make more of of this rivalry if, if this is a high school movie to begin with. Um, sure, why not? I mean, I, I, I'm kind of curious as to what the hatred stems from. I'm sure it's got to be more than just a couple games won or lost here and there. But um, I don't know. Maybe that's just the curiosity in me. Um, sometimes I tend to be a curious party myself. So this might be one of those times. Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, what's your mulligan moment there, Corey? I don't really have one. There's no part in this movie that really stands out oh, okay. that, you know, I wish I would change or uh, cut out or anything. Honestly, it's a tight lean movie, so I wouldn't really change anything. Right, fair enough. Well, then we can move on to Finger Looking Good. Finger licking good. And let's see. For me, um, every Spicoli scene, especially the ones with him and Mr. Hand, um, it's always been that way. It's always going to be that way because I think Sean Penn makes this film. And I think his chemistry uh, with Ray is um, just uh, an all-timer. So Ray Walston and Sean Penn together are just, it's it's movie it's it's great greatness it's awesome love the two how about you Corey? i'm the exact same way uh uh, any scene where spicoli's in the classroom with mr hand that's hands down my favorite like that's what made me laugh the hardest when i first watched it and that's what makes me laugh the most today uh if i had to pick one specific part of that it would be the part with the pizza i think is the funniest to me um, but the, I don't know is pretty, uh, up there too. Like I, I, there's just so many lines, but I just love the look on Spicoli's face when Mr. Hands handing out the pizza yes. and the look like, of I get sorrow, the, fact, the look of sorrow there. And then like Mr. Hand, like it doesn't even look like he enjoys pizza, but he's just like doing it despite <laughs> yes. Spicoli, you know, like it's just so great. And then yeah, like, I don't know. Like, I just love the fucking smarmy uh cockiness like it's just so it's good. good uh just the chemistry between it i mean they're both great in their own right but just the chemistry between uh mr hand and spicoli is just my favorite part so any scene with those two is my finger looking good that's that 
It's the funniest shit in the movie, in my opinion. All right, let's move on to like this, try that. You can deal with this, or you can deal with that. You can deal with this, or you can deal with that. You can deal with this, or you can deal with that. So if you like this film, might you try Dazed and Confused, a double feature I've been doing for the last 20 years, just on the sheer fact that they complement one another and together have close similarities that resemble the ultimate high school experience. Fast Times is about the school year itself and ends up at the and, at, and, and ends at the end of the school year, while Days picks up where Fast Times ended and focuses on the final day itself and the summer that follows. To me, they complement each other rather well. So, how about you, Core? This might sound odd and kind of obvious, but my pick is going to be Clueless. Uh, you okay. know, obviously from the same director. But I think they go well together just because it's so interesting, like the different time periods, you know, obviously this one in the early 80s and then Clueless in the mid 90s. I think they both just represent their time so well and just how things change so much within, you know, about whatever it was like 13, 14 year uh, period. It's just so interesting to me. I just like the contrast between the two. Like you have the, uh, you know, raunchy teen comedy of this one fast times. And then you have the clueless kind of, it's still a teen comedy, but it's, uh, it doesn't have the raunchiness. It's elevated a little bit more. It's just so much more superficial. And I just think it goes well together. Just if you're looking for like eighties, nineties combo, I just appreciate those two. And you know, I love clueless. Like I'm a huge fan of clueless. So any chance I get to bring that one up, um, I always want to do that. So I think it might be a little bit of an odd pairing, but I think it's just interesting having the two different decades represented there with the teen comedies. All right, let's move on to movie MVPs. All right, now you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... Uh, I think we're going to have similar answers. Uh, I'll go first. Sean Penn. It's ultimately his film. He's front and center on every poster and video box. His scene, his scenes themselves stand out. And then you realize this is Sean Penn playing this character. It's Sean Penn. And yeah, to me, that's the MVP right there. So, who do you got, Corey? I mean, mine has to be Sean Penn too, really. Uh, you know, like you said, it's his movie. Like, you know, you get the feeling he wasn't really even a main character, but just his performance just kind of took over the whole movie, essentially. I mean, it is funny just knowing about Sean Penn, like just seeing him in different movies and interviews and then seeing this movie. Like when I when I first uh, was going to watch this movie, I mean, I think I am Sam. It just came out (laughs) or. Or something like that. Like uh, I had this preconceived notion of Sean Penn, and then I watched this movie, and I'm like, "Who is this guy? <laughs> the surfer, the surfer uh, stoner guy?" And this, I mean, he just pulls it off so well, and it's just so believable and funny. But I will say, I have to give a shout out to uh, Ray Wallstead. I mean, he is just so close. Like Mr. Hand, I just love Mr. Hand. Like it is so close for me. Uh, to say Mr. Han would be my MVP as well. Just because I just love the way the lines are delivered. Just 
he says them with such a fake sincerity. I just love the sarcasm when he says it. I don't know. Like you could just <laughs> feel the like resentment just coming out of his right. mouth as like Spicoli's wasting his time. So I have to mention, uh, you, you know, Mr. Hand there and uh, Ray Walston's performance. I just think that's an all timer as well. Like if Spicoli's number one, like he's not far below it. Uh, and but the, all the performances are great in this film. I I don't think anybody does a bad job everybody's memorable in this movie all right well let's move on to the final category aka the final effect treatment ow on a scale of one ow on a scale ah. on a scale ow. on a scale of one to ten <laughs> on a scale of one to ten give me the damn veggies what do you think all right um this was tough Kicking around a couple ratings here. Uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm going to give this four and a half stars. Uh, it's a near perfect, but not quite perfect movie. It's um, a movie I'm just going to continue to just appreciate, love, cherish, respect, reference, um, recommend. You name it, I'm going to be doing it down the road forever and ever until the day I close my eyes forever. And, you know, rightfully so. Because, like, we've just been talking about the last couple hours now. You know, this movie has a lot of things stacking up for the acting. Um, just the, the, the authentic feel of it being high school. And you just along for the ride with these characters and their arcs that they go through. Um, and, and just, you know, Amy Heckerling, her directing, her decision... Every decision that she makes, whether it be uh, as a part of the creative process, whether it be, you know, every song that she, you know, handpicked to be a part of the movie to, you know, maybe whether it was like a style or something. She had one of the actors act a scene out doing just her, um, just her involvement. Uh, It's just, it, 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 it really paid off and. I don't think that we would be talking about this film the way we are today forty after 40 years uh, if it were anybody else in, behind that chair. Um, you know, because this is a teen comedy. These movies are a dime a dozen. Only the good ones, you know, we talk about for generations, and this is one of those. This could have easily been, you know... The exact opposite. This could have been a dud that we could have not even remembered four years later. But it's quite the exact opposite. And before I continue to, you know, babble and babble and babble, I just want to say, you know, this is one of the best 80s teen, you know, high school, whatever genre you want to classify it as. This is one of the best. So can't recommend this film enough. Yeah. There, that's that. That's my final effect notice on the movie. <laughs> <laughs> final effect notice. Right. Go on, Core. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an all-timer, so I'll give it four out of five stars. Uh, there's a few things I would tweak, uh, like I said in the cons or previously, but overall, uh, this movie holds up. You know, like, if you look back at important 80s comedies, this is definitely up there as one of the top. Uh, and it's still funny today. There's some movies like 
I'll throw Animal House out there. I know a lot of people point to that as a very important comedy and it's hilarious. I've watched it a couple times. I don't particularly like that movie all that much. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I completely don't judge anybody who likes it, but I just don't get it. I don't know. But I think this one is Fast Times. I think it holds up a lot better. I think it holds up really well. It's just one of those movies. It's a great example of its genre. It's a product of its time a little bit, but it's still funny. I think you can still have a good time even if you're a younger person. And I think people will still talk about it. I mean, like you said, it's definitely one of the best examples of like the teen comedy, especially from the eighties. Uh, you know, so many great, uh, actors in the movie, so many great performances, awesome writing, uh, from Cameron Crowe, great directing from Amy Heckerling. I mean, up and down, it's just launched so many people's careers. Um, and then uh, of course, an all timer by Sean Penn, so, yeah, it's just one of those movies that'll always be important. I think people always still watch it and talk about it, even, you know, several years from now. So it absolutely gets, uh, you know, the film effect sale approval for me. Uh, I mean, if you haven't checked it out, firstly, while you listen to this episode, but uh, get out there and watch it. I mean, I guarantee you just about anybody can have a good time, uh, despite some of the subject matter or maybe some of the things not exactly working. Um, it's just a fun short movie to watch and it's just a classic i mean i didn't watch it till i was in my late teens still a classic to me i still look back fondly on it and think it's you know one of the best 80s teen comedies and always enjoy it and can't wait to keep watching it you know keep talking about it keep spreading the word you know uh i think these movies are important to talk about you know you don't mm-hmm. want to forget about our history you know it's just I feel like nowadays we're so focused on like the Disney and, uh, you know, superhero stuff. It's just like, I I don't see as many great comedies coming out nowadays. You know, maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think, uh, they make the comedies like they used to. So that's why I appreciate films like this so much more nowadays and think people should check it out. Yeah, they really don't. It's kind of like a lost art is a fine comedy. I don't know. I know one thing, though. I know this episode is sponsored by my old man's ultimate set of tools. He's a television repairman. I can fix it. And sadly, (laughs) that is the end of our 40th anniversary of our Fast Times episode. A film that gets that full film effect seal of approval, as we just discussed. One down, many more to follow. Check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over at our website, which, of course, is thefilmeffectpodcast.com. And please follow us on the following social media platforms for all future announcements and up-the-minute updates, episode drops, you name it, it's up there. First and foremost, we're on Facebook and Instagram at the Film Effect Podcast. We're on Twitter at Film Effect Pod. Check us out on TikTok at Film Effect Podcast. TikTok. I'm said that already. YouTube, um, the link's in the episode notes. Again, it's not a customized URL. Uh, email is thefilmeffectpodcast at gmail.com. Um, as always, ratings, reviews, whether they be for better or worse, as long as they're honest, send them over. Apple, Spotify, thefilmeffectpodcast.com slash reviews. Um, and it, it goes a long way and really helps us out. So please, let's get the reviews in there. More. More is good. If you haven't already, don't forget to check out Fubercast and last week's Waterworld episode featuring myself, Corey, and Justin. And coming up, we have 
couple of episodes when Freddy versus Jason first off and then Boyhood from Richard Linklater, two films that I personally handpicked to cover in celebration of the anniversary of my birth. Can't believe it's already been a year since last year's wrestler episode when we had our brother Nick Brownell on for. But here we are a year later and goddamn, we're going to do it again. Um... Other than that, I have some news regarding what titles will be a part of Columbia's third coming 4K set that's uh, dropping next month, as well as some other insightful scoops on a couple of beloved titles. All of that this Friday on FewerCast. And other than that, that's going to be it. Thank you all so much for listening to the show. And uh, yeah, we shall return on Friday for FewerCast. Until then, I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this has been the Home Effect Podcast. Class dismissed. Take care now. Bye bye. Something happened to him, man. <laughs> and on that note. here it's over go home go